Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode number 20. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad that you are here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. Good morning, KCW alcoholic, uh, January 13th of 1990. 1990, let me figure out the math on that. That's like 31 years? That's right. Is it really? That is. Yay, 31 years. Amen. Congratulations. Thank you. That's fantastic. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the early years of your life and what your family looked like and where you were born? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I am part of a storied group of your uh, recent guests. Um, I was born in Baylor Hospital on February 7th of 1972. <laughs> Yay. Uh, exactly. I, I loved hearing that. As I kept listening to your podcast, it yeah. kept getting more momentum that people yeah. were born there. I had no uh, idea. I was actually the biggest baby born in Baylor Hospital in February of 1972. Wow. And at that time... They would give you a $500 football scholarship to Baylor if you were the biggest baby born. Uh, <laughs> and so my mom tells the story, but uh, I did not go to Baylor. But uh, the joke is that I was, it wasn't good enough that I was just a baby. You know, I had to be the biggest baby. And I've been a special little <laughs> snowflake ever since. So, um, but yeah, I, I was born there. My parents got divorced when I was young. Uh, they got divorced, uh, I think, right around the time I was maybe three. We were living in Plano. When my parents got divorced, my mom and I moved around a little bit and then ended up in Richardson. And that's where I did my grade school and middle school uh, was in Richardson. And my dad had moved away. And so I wasn't real close to my dad. It wasn't like going to visit on weekends and things like that. My mom really raised me. She worked two and three jobs. She was a school teacher, also alcoholic because she told me so. Uh, and she's sober. I'm sure as we get into that, I'll talk a little bit more about my mom and our relationship. Yeah, latchkey kid and uh, would show up at home and be at home by myself for sometimes a couple of hours, sometimes all night. Kind of a lonely and scared kid. Uh, I think I probably would have been lonely and scared no matter what my circumstance was, but I was alone. Um, what were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person? Were you guys going to church? Were you watching televangelists on TV? What were you doing? We went to the First United Methodist Church in Richardson, which okay. I think was like the largest Methodist church at the time. It was a huge church. Uh, Dr. John Ogden was the minister there, and I remember really latching on to especially uh, the young people, kids my age and, you know, doing Bible study and those kinds of things. I used to go to summer camp a lot when I was a kid. I always felt like I was a bit of a seeker. I enjoyed the big church service. There was nothing about that that I didn't like. As far as my understanding of God, I don't know if I had a huge understanding of God as, as a kid. Uh, however, I did know that I really enjoyed being there. Um, and, and so I didn't have any kind of, there was, there was some negative connotations that came later 
as I got older and I thought I was thinking I was getting smarter, uh, but as a kid, uh, really felt comfortable there and, and it was a real positive for me. That's cool. That's interesting. It's weird how everybody has a different lane and a different path they travel in life because I went to the Highland Park United Methodist Church and I hated it. Mm, I yeah. I did, did, did not have a good experience yeah. there. Uh, I would say the exact opposite. You said the sentence, I really enjoyed being there. I would yeah. add a word uh, not to that sentence. <laughs> I, I was <laughs> the church I went to. I did not enjoy well, being there. Well, did your there. mom or parents force you to go? Yes. I mean, what was it you didn't like about it? Uh, okay, just sitting still. It was that. I mean, I did not believe in God. Yep, yep. And I was in a building mm-hmm. and in the structure, yep. surrounded by people who did and were attempting to educate me through a piece of literature called the Bible, right? Which I thought probably was a piece of fiction. Yep. Uh, to believe in a false thing that I thought uh, people that were weak believed in. Yep. Now, that probably had a lot more to do with me than it did with them. Yep. I just wasn't feeling it, man. Yeah. And I, uh, it makes me sad when I look back on it now because there were so many good things going on yeah. there. I can see that a lot of people were enjoying it, and I could see where um, you could probably get a sense of solace and peace from mm-hmm. that as a child or even a 90-year-old lady. Yep. It doesn't matter. Yep. You, you can get, there's a lot to be offered in those settings that I just wasn't, it wasn't connecting with me. And that's okay because that was my journey. But what did that do? What did, you know, real life, what did that do to me? Uh, it made me, you know, pretty lonely. Mm-hmm. And I, I started to rely on self-propulsion to get me through life and right. rely on my own wits and do something that my grandfather always talked about. He'd say, you know, you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you know, you got to figure it out. And I was like, well, I don't wear boots. You know, (laughs) I don't, I don't know what bootstraps are. I don't have bootstraps. I don't even know what you're talking about. So anyways, whatever, I tried to figure that all out. And the only thing, the first thing that I ever found in my life that gave me solace and peace and comfort was alcohol. Yeah. And that was at age 13. Yep. And now that I have an 11 year old son and I think about the fact that I started drinking in an alcoholic manner at the age of 13 yeah. when I have an 11 year old son now is horrifying to it's me a lot to think about because he's sure. a tiny little boy. I have an 11 year old kid and he's tiny and he's yeah. little and he's cute and he's pure and he's fun and he's innocent and he is in no way a good candidate to be drinking alcohol in a couple yeah. of years. And I think about the fact that I did and, but that's where I received a solace and release. Mm-hmm. And then all the televangelists started to come through on TV, like uh, Robert Tilton and all these yep. other dudes. And then they all started getting busted for, you know, certain things. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I used that as ammunition in my little brain. I was like, yeah. see, I told you. I'm glad that you went and I'm glad that you had a good time. I, I do think it's a great thing and a great place to go for a lot of people. And I like all the ways that it's changed now between when I was a child and going now, which I occasionally go to church now. The music presentation is different. The dress is different. Yeah. The music is so different because yeah. we used to sing like straight up hymn in the Methodist church. Yeah, the Methodist hymnal was a yeah. no joke thing. When yeah. you would when you would uh, get confirmed, mm-hmm. that was what you were given. Mm-hmm. You were given the Methodist hymnal. I mean, that was a big deal. And I, I remember the first time I, as an adult, went to a church where they were you know electric guitars and drums, and I was like, hold on a second, this yeah. isn't the way you do church. Oh, and they have lights at my church. They have smoke <laughs> right? machines. There's, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's exactly. smoke machines and lasers, yeah. and I'm like, okay, wow, this is nothing like. 1978 Highland Park United Methodist they did not have lasers they did not have smoke machines well I tell you what it's funny because what you're describing that you're feeling 
towards the church is exactly what I felt the first, uh, you know, the couple of years before I got sober. You know, I had really pushed a lot of those things out of the way. All the principles that were kind of practiced in the Methodist church were not what I was practicing, you know, and so I had to separate those things. And, and again, there was a lot of scandal and things like that, and, and it was easy to become judgmental of that. But I, as a small kid going to church, I really enjoyed it. Specifically, we would go to, I would go to two or three church camps every year. And I just remember having so much fun with those kids. They did a thing called Vespers where you would go to the kind of the top of the hill. There was this rugged cross and people would sit in chairs and you would kind of sit at sunset. And and I've always felt, uh, you know, spirituality and the presence of God, especially outside. And man, that that feeling was a very overwhelming and undeniable feeling when I was 10, 11, 12, you know, the, uh, the late elementary school age. Uh, uh, that feeling that I felt doing that was very undeniable. Now, if I had sat down and just read the Bible or listened to a sermon, I may or may not have gotten moved. But being with a bunch of kids outside, you know, uh, as the sun is setting and there's the rugged cross and there we're singing songs and having a good time. I, I really felt, uh, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the fabric, uh, uh, of that spirituality. You know, I feel like I discovered spirituality before I discovered religion. And then when I discovered religion, that made me question, made me question more so than the idea that, that the universe was in charge. Right. Yeah, that's a huge topic. We could do three hours just on, I know, on that sure. uh, that whole deal. For sure. If there's anybody out there that's listening that's a member of the Highland Park United Methodist Church or you work there or you're a preacher there or whatever, I am not mad at you. Please don't be <laughs> please don't be mad at me. I don't feel like I'm talking trash about you or your church. I'm just telling you honestly my experience there and had probably had a lot more to do with me than you yep, guys for sure so i apologize if sure. i have offended anybody that's your church home you know <laughs> please don't be mad at me uh there's still hope for me hold out hope for me pray for me i still might come home there one of these go. days i'm only 51 go. years old <laughs> I've, i feel like i got another good 40 years uh-huh. in me that's i got right. to get another good 40 years in me at least so i still might come home so <laughs> hold out hope for me and please that's don't right. be super mad at me i apologize if i made you mad um, okay, so let's talk about your childhood overall. Was it super fun? Was it a struggle? You said you said you were lonely and stuff, yeah. but did you have friends? Or did you have fun? Or were you just chilling and stressed out? What were you doing? Uh, God, that's, that's so great. I feel so far removed from that. And in reflecting about it, the things that I remember were the negative things, right? The negative emotions, the negative feelings. I definitely had friends. We had food on the table. I always had some kind of job. And so... I certainly must have had some good times, but the things that stuck out in my mind were the loneliness, the anxiety, the not feeling good enough, not feeling like I fit in. And probably if an outside observer had looked in and just observed what my middle school years looked like, they probably would have thought I was having a great time, that I was popular, that I had a lot of friends. They might have been envious of me. And I will also say that what I remember from that is working really hard to try to get people to like me, uh, having this kind of hole in my chest that just wouldn't get filled no matter how much mama loved me, no matter how much people would give me a pat on the back and tell me I was doing a great job or compliment me or, or try to lift me up. I didn't, I never felt good enough. And I, I always had a lingering fear that you didn't like me and that I was not good enough. I would have nightmares, mm-hmm. right? And I, I slept walk a lot as a child. I don't know 
what kind of mental or emotional problems I had. But I, and I would hurt myself when I would, when I would sleepwalk. I remember one time going into the closet and pulling down the bookshelves onto myself uh, and, and getting a bloody nose. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, running full speed into a brick wall when I was, when I, I would get out of the house. Um, and, wow. and so that, that anxiety, and I would wake up and have kind of these lucid moments of dreaming that were very terrifying, you know, and, and none of that was because of any trauma. My parents uh, were were doing the very best that they could. Uh, and, and so, you know, I didn't have anything like that growing up. Uh, but man, I was a scared little kid. Did you ever talk to your mom? Like, Hey, like, and about not being around a lot where you were like, yo, I'm here a lot by myself. Can you be here more? What was she doing? Was she working? Was she partying? She was, was she? she was doing a bit of both, mm-hmm. uh, probably more working than partying, but, yeah. but there was some partying. I, I also, at, at a young age, mom would take me to the bar with her sometimes. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and that felt very natural to me. I was friends with her friends, and it wouldn't be a big deal if I would, you know, kind of fall asleep on a couch somewhere in a bar, uh, hanging out with my mom and her friends. I don't know how often we did that, but I very much remember those times d- doing that with her. Um, and I, I don't know if I told her that how much I wish she was at home. Mm. I don't know if I knew how much I wish she was at home. I just knew being at home by myself was scary. Yeah. Did you have a dog or a cat or a fish? We ha- I had a dog. Uh, that was very short-lived because I didn't want to take care of it. And so my mom gave the dog to her mom. Uh-huh. So, But I didn't really have pets. I didn't have siblings. So it was just kind of me and my mom in this kind of lower middle-class neighborhood in Richardson when I was a kid. So your dad took off at three. Did he ever come back in the picture or so was he around? My dad's awesome. We have yeah. a great relationship today. He was awesome then too. Yeah. But he had gotten remarried. Yeah. They moved to Kansas City, so it was, you know, not really feasible for me to go see him on weekends. And so I, I remember going to visit him in the summer for a week or two. Yeah. Uh, I remember going, you know, all of our extended family on his side lived down here. And so we'd go to my mama's house in Louisville um, uh, for Christmas. And so I saw him and I he was always my hero. I always had a great time with him. He was always funny. Um, and fun to be around, but I definitely didn't have a strong male figure in my life when I was growing up just because I didn't see my dad very often. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? Uh, I thought it was just kind of what people did. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom drank a lot. And so, um, was she drinking beer, wine, Jack Daniels? The thing that doing? I remember was Kahlua, you know, Kahlua and, and, and <laughs> what milk or coffee? I, you know, I, I don't know. I just they're both remember gross, that, right? I, I remember there being like a bottle of Kahlua, a bottle of Bailey's, oh my God. vodka, what? you know, those were kind of the three main <laughs> things. I remember screwdrivers. I remember Bailey's on the rocks. I guess maybe it was Kahlua. Kahlua and coffee, but I, I will say that at a very early age, I would come home, fourth grade, fifth grade, and pour myself a little bottle of Kahlua, or a little glass of Kahlua, mm-hmm. and I would um, smoke my mom's Benson and Hedges what? Menthol Ultra Lights. Gangster, dude. yeah. And, and I don't remember really getting <laughs> drunk. I definitely remember getting a buzz from smoking, you know. But I, I, I joke my like my first drinking career was. You know, kind of drinking like a middle-aged woman in fourth grade, you know, uh, with, with the Kahlua and the cigarettes. So. Wow, drinking Kahlua uh-huh. and smoking cigarettes in yeah. fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. Remember those, uh, speaking of girly cigarettes, what were they called? Virginia Slims? Oh, my mom smoked Virginia Slims menthol ultralights, too. 
mm-hmm. we would I would smoke those. I mean, <laughs> it, it was it was just whatever you could think of the most female middle aged you know, middle aged cigarette was the one we smoked. Did she ever get on that boxed wine, that Franzia boxed you know, wine? I don't remember my mom drinking much wine or beer, and maybe because of the economy of drinking liquor, I don't know what it was, but I, I remember a lot more liquor than I remember beer or wine as a kid. Wow. All right. Let's get to your, well, you kind of just mentioned your first drink, but let's get to uh, those first few drinks and what yeah. did alcohol do for you? I, I, I do remember feeling more relaxed. I know a lot of people, Clancy and those talk about, you know, uh, the spring that's tightening and kind of being able to take a breath and unwind. I just, I, I remember, especially by like seventh grade, it being a lot more magical. And I remember those first few times of really getting drunk um, and, and just feeling like, man, this is this, this is kind of what I've been looking for, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's interesting, right around this time that I figured out that alcohol was what I was looking for, I got away from church, right? And so for a long time, as a little kid seeking going to church, as a as a older kid seeking by drinking and you know eventually doing drugs and smoking and kind of hanging out with those people and trying to get those people to like me right the drinking and and pot smoking crowd and and trying to fit into that group I was trying to fit into that group a heck of a lot more than I was trying to fit into the church group at that point well it's like you were in the the church lane God lane and then you switched to the yep. party lane and then later I'm sure you're going to tell us you switched back to yep, the spiritual for sure for so sure. you were seeking you said you were a seeker earlier yeah. yep you're not the first person on this podcast to say the exact same pathway as far as them being in church enjoying it feeling what they're saying picking up on what they're saying enjoying it having friends and then discovering alcohol you know whatever ages 10 to 16 right and then getting away from church and then going over to the drinking side and then i don't know what the rest of your story is going to hold but i would assume sliding back Mm -hmm. towards the spiritual side later that's right um how did it make you feel in the beginning of your drinking career? I mean, you said it helped you feel more relaxed. Did you ever have that like huge moment where you're like, oh my God, I got to like try to do this every weekend or yeah, every day? I, it, that may have happened more when I did some of the drugs. You know? um, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like it, what? Were you doing weed or what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I, I feel like if, if it didn't require a needle, I probably did it. Right, um, right. And, and so, uh, uh, and part of that was just because you know, it was easier kind of as a teenager to get drugs than it was to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, I do, I do remember a couple of times getting real, there's one specific time I remember getting really drunk with a bunch of friends out in the country. Mm-hmm. We had all brought alcohol from the house. Um, so it was a mix of things, right? And, and I had brought a bottle of vodka, some guys brought beer. And so we didn't have ice or cups or anything. And I remember we would take a few drinks off of the beer and mix the vodka into the warm beer and start drinking that. Oh my God. And you know, nobody that night got drunk off of that. You wouldn't drink enough of it, but I got drunk off of it. And yeah. I remember being real toasty yeah. and getting back to the cabin and laying down and it's hot and it's everything's spinning. And I remember getting real sick mm-hmm. and I just remember waking up the next morning and, and, you know, kind of that alcoholic thinking, not thinking, God, that was terrible. I don't want to do that again. Just remember thinking, man, that was awesome. And I do want to do that again. Maybe I need to avoid the thrown up part of it, but man, the being trash part of it was, 
was uh, an epiphany of sorts for sure. That's awesome. For so sure. Magical for you. Same yeah, for man. me. So do you consider yourself an alcoholic and a drug addict these days? Yeah. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I could probably say that in a meeting. If I was going to start a list of things that I did wrong in life, it could be a pretty long one. Mm-hmm. So I stick with alcoholic. I, f- I feel like when I read the book and it describes the thinking, mm-hmm. um, if I replace that thinking with, uh, with sugar, with drugs, with sex, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, if it's something that makes me feel better immediately, I'll do it. You right. Know? And so, uh, a- a- alcoholic, I think encompasses a lot of those things that make me feel good quickly. Um, whereas the spiritual solution is usually that slower grind of, of taking more time to feel better and, uh, have it last, you know, uh, but a, a quick fix solution describes a lot of the things I did before I got to uh, AA and describes a lot of the things that I've done in AA, right? Yeah. Uh, still trying to feel better quick, you know. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't. T- you wouldn't have to look f- too far in my credit card bill to go, oh, okay, yeah, you bought three pairs of Nikes on, you know, this day three weeks ago. Why would you possibly need three pairs of shoes? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it continues on. Yes, I understand that. Yep. Uh, how did you secure alcohol was a, as a minor? Was it something that was required a lot of detective work and movement or stealing or borrowing or begging? What would you do? Yeah, my mom drank, uh, and so it was easy to steal from her mm-hmm. uh, because she would just assume she ran out. <laughs> um, and then uh, we did uh, what we called wahooing, you know, where you would go to the grocery store and they would have that display of beer right in the front of the store. And so you would just walk in, grab two cases of beer, scream wahoo and run out into the car, you know? I've heard of um, that. And, and so that was, you know, it was it was stealing. Uh, there was a couple of places. Uh, uh, I moved around a little bit, and we can talk about that, but there's a couple of places in Austin in the late 80s where you could go and pay a premium, and they would sell to you even though you were underage, and so uh, we did some of that too. Well, you just tip the guy five or ten bucks? So or... I, I don't. I just remember that a six-pack of beer or a four-pack. Yeah, a six-pack of beer or a four-pack of wine coolers was five dollars and at the time in the late 80s they were should have been more like 250 okay um and so uh uh it was kind of double the price of whatever it was that you wanted uh and it was kind of he wouldn't exactly ring it up on the cash register yeah he would just say five times whatever you got yeah yeah yeah. he had a little uh little business work that's exactly right yeah we used in north dallas over here we used to go down to this street called lombardi over off of webb's chapel okay on the north side of bachman lake there's a street called lombardi and all those skanky gas stations right. and beer stores would sell to us. Very similar thing. With Very our really, thing. really fake IDs. Yeah, yeah. I, when I was a kid, uh, you could go to the State Fair. You may or may not remember the State Fair of Texas. And you could get an Oklahoma ID at the State <laughs> Fair of Texas. And it was a jinky looking little thing. But yeah. man, I tried to pass it off places for yeah. sure. It didn't work very often, but I, I definitely tried to get some mileage out of it. Did you ever go to a drive through beer barn? Oh, that was the, the place where the guy would charge me five bucks. That was it. You wouldn't have to walk in. You would drive through, yeah. and he would just hand it to you through the window, and you'd yeah. hand him some fives. Yeah, the the, one, the drive-through beer barn that we would secure our alcohol at, as a minor was in Louisville, Texas. Okay. So we'd go up 35 just on the south side of Lake Louisville. There was a skanky little gas station slash liquor store, and they had a drive-through yes. liquor beer barn, and we'd just roll through the drive-through oh, a bunch of 16-year-olds, and we'd be like... 
We just hooked it up. Well, I mentioned Louisville. I have five generations of Louisville fighting farmers in my family. My my family goes way back in Louisville, so I have I have no doubt that there's some of my family members that have frequented yeah. <laughs> exactly what you're talking about. Totally. I've been in their football stadium. I know exactly yeah, where the high school's out. It's awesome. Um, when did you start drinking on a regular basis, would you say? Probably around that time, 12, 13. Okay. Yeah, 12, 13. Wow, that's scary. No wonder you're an AA. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it, you know, it, I, I never, I never felt like I was good at something. You know, people have these, uh, you know, they were sports or some other extracurricular that kind of kept them motivated to do other things. That was not me. I would come home. We would mess around in the neighborhood. You know, skateboard and and occasionally play a sport or something like that. But it was a bunch of kids in my neighborhood with divorced parents living with their mom. They weren't home you know, in the evening either. And so, you know, I'd have guys come over and we'd smoke cigarettes and, and drink Kahlua together. And, and we would do the same thing over at their house. You know, everybody's mom kind of drank and worked late, you know? Yeah. Did you, did you, did you, I never asked this question on this podcast. Did you, did you ever think that at that time that that was like risky behavior or that was adult behavior and you shouldn't be doing that or this is dangerous? Did you ever think that? I kind of thought that I would get in trouble if someone found out, but I also just thought, this is what people do, and so eventually we're going to get there, you uh-huh. know. And so uh, this is this is not terrible. Now later, as we start to get into some of the drugs and the drinking and driving and some of those things, I, I obviously started to understand that that was not good. Um, but but early on, uh, it didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. All right, that kind of just rolls perfectly into my next question. You answered the first part of, of it already, which was how did alcohol help you when you first started drinking and the second part i want to ask you now how did alcohol hurt you when you were first started drinking how did it help me i I think just that sense of ease and comfort you know that it that it talks about in the book uh i definitely felt that um i don't know if it helped me talk to girls i was i was never especially very young i was never great i was always interested in girls never great at talking to them Uh um and, and so maybe that helped uh, it certainly helped with all the anxiety and fear that I had. Um, and then as far as consequence goes, I think just part of it was getting sick. Part of it was um, part of it was I started to alienate myself from some of the friends, right? You had to start to kind of break off into a friend group and you'd have these buddies over that you had been friends with for a long time and say, hey, I'm breaking out the cigarettes in Kahlua, right? Mm-hmm. And they would say... Um, I'm not doing that, you know. So, so some of those friends that were probably healthy, positive friends, I started to let go of, and some of the ones that were more of the hole in the stomach, needed something to feel good type of friends were the ones that I gravitated towards a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about what your life looked like from a ages 13 to 17? What was going on with you? Sure, yeah. I, I think I was having a somewhat normal experience as a 13 year old, certainly as, as middle school kind of goes on the, the weekend parties and those kind of things. I was one of the more out of control kids, but at at age 15, my mom and a friend of hers decided to get into the restaurant business. And this was in Florida. And so we moved from Richardson where I had lived my whole life, had all my friends uh, to Florida. What part? So we lived in Tampa. Um, which is a great place to live. I met my wife there. We had our kids there. And so I got nothing bad to say about Tampa. Mm -hmm. I will say that as a 15 year old moving away from all the friends that you had had felt devastating. Oh yeah. That's a big deal. That's your whole world. Exactly. And so did you have a girlfriend you had to leave? Uh, I did. And it, Oh no, did it hurt? It was terrible. (laughs) How bad did it hurt? It it was terrible because (laughs) you thought she was the one, right? Oh man. And, And, 
and she was just she was a, she was so sweet. She was a year older than me too. Was she so pretty? she drove. Mm-hmm. She was beautiful. Oh, no, and, and I mean, you know. Just I started. I'm sorry that you had to do. That. It's got to, It's tough, dude. Well, and not to get too much into detail, but it was like the first person that we did things besides just kiss, really. And mm-hmm. so and you know, mom's like, "We're moving." You're like, right? What? Yeah, exactly, exactly. How dare you? What, what kind of restaurant did she open? What so, did you do? Hamburgers or seafood pizza? restaurant? Seafood. Seafood. We bought this old. It was a Lums, which is like a little diner. Uh, we had kind of gotten this concept from another company that was there in Florida and we bought their recipes and their purveyors and their menus and all these things from them and, and opened this restaurant. And so we did all the work ourselves. We cleaned it up. We stocked it. We hired my mom and partner didn't know anything about the restaurant business. My mom is not even that good of a cook still to this day. I spent that summer after my eighth grade year getting that restaurant cleaned up. And then we opened that thing at the end of the summer. And my life for the time when I was in Florida was wake up early, go to school. For whatever reason, school was early in Florida. I would go to school early and then drive over and work at the restaurant. And we were open six days a week. We were closed on Sundays. And so uh, I was at the restaurant six days a week, busing, cooking, waiting tables, shucking oysters, doing all those kinds of things. Um, Started to make money, right? I'm getting paid while I'm doing this. Uh, and my friends start to become all these people that work at the restaurant. You know, they're all 18, 19, 20, some of these 25, 30. And so I started to get into this very mature lifestyle uh, with these older people. I didn't really make a lot of friends at my high school, right? Uh, uh, because I had these people that I spent a lot more time with at the restaurant. And so uh kind of my maturity started to grow I say maturity right I just started hanging out with with older people and doing things that older people did drinking a lot more doing a lot especially smoking pot we did that you know all day kind of every day we would get shift beers right and so we were drinking in the kitchen um and I had gotten so out of control in that year of being in Florida that my mom just didn't know what to do with me I say she kicked me out of the house I I don't know. The, I think she was doing the absolute best she could with what she had. She was having her own demons that she was dealing with. And, and so my dad had found himself recently single. He had gotten divorced from his second wife um, and was living in Austin, Texas. And so ended up moving to Austin um, and, and finished my uh, high school in Austin. So basically went to three different high schools, went to ninth grade at one school in Richardson, 10th grade at one school in Florida, and then junior and senior year in Austin. Um, and my dad... I think about this today, right? I was 16 years old, out of control. My mom didn't know what to do with me. What do you mean by out of control? uh, So just no curfew, no respect for the rules, uh, uh, would wreck my car, would wreck other people's car, would steal, uh, um, just incredibly unreliable, undependable, uh, and probably very frightening because I would leave for a day, right? Uh, and there's no cell phone. There's no tracking me. There's none of those kind of things. I mean, this is 1988. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, um, my mom tried everything, yell, scream, be nice, give me that. I mean, just, she tried everything that she could to get me under control and she couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so moving in with my dad, I think about this today. I think he was 45. So five years, uh, younger than I am right now. And I'm imagining what it would be like to not really have had a kid, you know, certainly not a teenager. And now my first experience parenting, parenting a teenager at my house is going to be this out of control 16 year old. And so um, what my dad ended up doing was 
giving me a lot of leash and treating me more like a roommate. There were not a lot of consequences. And so uh, once I got here, I really started to get lean more into um, drinking and drugging. Um, before school, all day long, you know, I went to a high school where this was right before they changed the smoking age. And so you could go out onto the sidewalk and smoke in between classes. And so we would smoke pot in between classes. We would show up to school early and drink and sell drugs. It was this really, I just thought I was having a great time. You know, I I really did. And I was out of my mind pretty much all day, every day. There would be phone calls home. I think my dad was in a little bit of denial, you know, as far as he just didn't want to believe everything that was going on. It's probably a very hard thing to face. I can't imagine him trying to do something about it. Um, I slept in my car a lot. I couch surfed a lot. Uh, I, I was gone for, you know, sometimes days at a time. My dad was very busy. He traveled a lot. And so when he would travel, I had you know, carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to. Um, and, and so uh, it really helped me get to my bottom faster because there were not a lot of rails, not a lot of rules to the road uh, those last couple of years of my drinking. Wow, you were just running with no brakes. Did you ever, did it ever occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol at any point? And what did you do about that thought? So it didn't necessarily occur to me that I had a problem with alcohol. I'm a teenager and so I'm thinking, my biggest problem is that it's illegal, right? And mm-hmm. so I have to steal it mm-hmm. uh, or pay a premium, like we talked about. For or drive illegally because yeah. you're not supposed to drive yeah. drunk. Exactly. exactly. Those are all problems. All problems. I knew that the drugs were a bad deal, right? That's against the law. And at the time, this was like kind of the just say no and really cracking down. And so it didn't take much to get you distribution, right? Mm-hmm. When when, um, when you're caught and, you know... The distribution was like a day, you know, a day's worth of personal use as far as I was concerned. Seriously. And so, <laughs> exactly. And so, I, you know, I... Um, intent to distribute, right. I think they called it. You're right. like, dude, it's two joints. It was like, yeah, like, dude, I got a quarter here. I'm not sure what you're talking about, but this is a Tuesday. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So, so, yeah. I, and so what I did about that was I did a lot of swearing off. Um, and what that looked like was the consequence of the night before would happen, right? You know, uh, I can think of one time specifically, uh, I was with some friends of mine. I won't get into too much detail, but we were doing some things in a car you shouldn't have been doing. Mm-hmm. And I got thrown out of a car that was going about 30 miles an hour and rolled into a ditch and onto a rock and into a barbed wire fence. Oh my God. And then went home, cut up. The best excuse I could come up with for my dad was that I had gotten in a fight. Um, and I just remember that night thinking, because the, the way this ended up happening, I would do anything that you gave me. And one of the things that I was doing at the time was inhaling carpet cleaner. You could buy it at the head shop. Not a great thing to do on so many levels. Um, and so that's what we were doing when we were driving down this hill and, and uh, I'm sitting on the uh, side of the door, leaning out of it and got thrown from the car. Wow. And... and I, I thought, man, I've got to stop doing that. You know, I've got to stop doing drugs. Uh, 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 and inevitably, the next day would come, and I would think, man, I really overreacted. I really thought I was choosing. Every time I swore off and didn't live up to it, and it was almost always 24 hours later, uh, I just thought I changed my mind. You know, oh, I, I kind of overreacted. I, I, and I did a lot of that 
Um, I'll do this, but I won't do this. You know, beer for hard alcohol, you know, weed for acid. I'm not going to do Coke again. You know, I mean, just all those kinds of justifications. And I was really playing games with my mind. I didn't realize it until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and y'all started telling me the stories. And I was like, wow, I really was playing a game with myself. But that, that's what that looked like was a lot of swearing off. I'm going to tell a real fast story. I would love to hear a story. I'm going to tell a real fast story I've never told in this podcast. It's really, really, I really haven't told hardly anybody this story ever in my life, but I'm going to tell it real quick. And I'm going to ask you to tell a similar story if you have, if you have something in the same lane. So my next question is, um, and I'll answer it. Yep. Did others ever confront you about your drinking and start to ask you questions about your behavior? Mm -hmm. Any of your, uh, I would say any of your girlfriends, any of your friends, did they yep. ever confront you or ask you the question? So what my story is, is I had this beautiful little girlfriend and mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I won't have to say her name, but she was a beautiful little girlfriend, yep. super cool, super nice, awesome in like 9 million different ways. I loved her. She loved me. Long story short, one day we were sitting in my car and I'm going to guess I was like, I guess, I guess I was 17 mm-hmm. and she was probably like 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a Saturday afternoon. I remember it was like three or four o'clock in the middle of the day. The sun was still up and we had, or I had partied the night before. She didn't really party, but I did the night before. And she had been watching me for a long time because she was with me all the time and she loved me. And I'll never forget that Saturday afternoon around 4 p.m. She looked at me in my car and she goes, hey. I go, yeah. And she goes, why do you drink so much? And I was horrified. Mm -hmm. Horrified. No good answer, right? That this gorgeous little creature... Mm -hmm who was in love with me, looked me dead in my eye and said, Hey, why do you drink so much? Mm -hmm. And, um, first of all, I was horrified. Mm -hmm. Second of all, uh, I was a little offended. Yep. Third of all, I was a little shocked. Yeah. And so I was like, scram, my mind was scrambling. I was like, what are you going to say? What are you, first of all, I was like, I was like, what is happening? And so I just kind of looked at her and I said, I remember clearly, I remember looking at her and I said, because I'm good at it. Wow. And I can. And I remember saying that yeah. and she looked at me and she's like, all right. And Did she get off the train that day? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she should have had her radar going a little yeah. bit stronger than she did. She didn't stick around too much longer, okay. but she did okay. ask me the question Yeah, and I did give her the answer that I, I drank so much because I was good at it and yeah. I liked it. I had no intentions of, of tapping the brakes, yep. had no intentions of stopping or anything like that. Um, but I just really haven't ever told anybody that story. And uh, it's now that I look back, like it's embarrassing Mm -hmm. that your 16 year old girlfriend would ask your 17 year old self that question. Did you ever have anybody ever confront you? I know your mom and dad stepped up and were like, what are you doing? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, they definitely did. And and then I feel like by the time I got to Austin, I had really surrounded myself with people who were rooting me on, you Mm -hmm. know I mean? (laughs) Uh, uh, People who were like, you you know, you can do more, suck it up, you Mm -hmm. know? And, And so, uh, I, I didn't have a lot of that. I, I am certain that it was very apparent to people who were even moderately close to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the lady at the Seven Eleven that I frequented. Uh, uh, those people were very aware that there was something going on with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like, to a certain extent, I kind of got the "what's your problem" from strangers. You know, strangers don't know how to quantify it in the same way that somebody who knows you does. Yeah. Right. But I, I got a lot of sideways looks, um, and again, you know, that idea of feeling lonely and isolated. I was actually trying to isolate myself and feeling that isolation kind of all at the same time. So I felt very judged. 
uh, especially towards the end, real or imagined, I felt very judged. And so I, I don't know that I had anyone that was close enough to me at that time that would have said anything besides, you're one of us, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there was definitely people, I, I'm going to fast forward just one step. I, I was probably seven or eight years sober. I had moved from Austin where I got sober and, um, I came back to visit and I was kind of occasionally when you get sober young, you, you, you question a little bit in your mind, you know, did I have some mileage left in me? And this was one of those times where I was questioning a little bit. And there was a guy who was at, at Northland, which is where I went to noon meeting at Northland. And I didn't recognize him, but he came up to me afterwards and he said, he said my first and last name. And he said, is that you? And I said, it is. And he said, um, he said, man, he said, it's so good to see you. I had assumed that you had died. Um, and, and so this is a guy who's one of us and in the program, right? And he's a guy watching me, you know, uh, in high school and, and concerned that I would have died. You know, so I have no doubt that there were people watching. Uh, and I, had a, I have no doubt that, that there were people who probably tried to sit me down and help me. Uh, but I mean, I was not having any of that. So oh. needless to say, as I walked out of that meeting, I thought, eh, probably in the right spot. I, I think I can stop <laughs> questioning that at least for the day. This guy thinks that, you know, this guy was thinking that I died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about legal consequences? You're having inter interfacing with law enforcement towards the end of your drinking? I don't know why. Even to this day, I feel like I was so slick, you know, <laughs> I just never, I never had a consequence and, uh, in the a legal sense, right? I did sit in the back of some cop cars. I have had bracelets on before, right behind mm -hmm. my back, mm -hmm. but man, those always got taken off and nothing happened. Um, I, I, I was just kind of right place, right time to never have a heavy legal consequence. Now I did get pulled over. A decent amount and I did get my car rifled through a decent amount um, and I did get lectured by cops a decent amount and I also lied to cops mm -hmm. a decent amount uh, which was probably easier to get away with in the late 80s than it was than it is today um, and, and so uh, I, I somehow didn't face that consequence I don't know how but I didn't this might be semi-controversial but it's yep. on my heart it. it's on my heart and it's on yep. my mind so I'm going to say it now and say it anyway yeah Long story short, I got pulled over a few times too. Mm -hmm. I got questioned a few times. I yep. had to, I had to walk the line, do ABCs, you know, hold, stand on one foot, walk this line, come back. I had to have my car gone through a few times. This, that, and the other. Uh, I was let go and let go and let go and let go multiple, multiple times. And so what happened is a couple of years ago that that Black Lives Matter thing came around, that BLM thing, mm -hmm. and I started to think about it. And I think like how unfair it was mm -hmm. and how lucky I was just based mm -hmm. on the color of my skin yeah. that I was let go, let go, let go, let go. And I can't imagine what would have happened to me down here in the yeah. South if I was black or Mexican yeah. or of any kind of Asian descent. Oh my gosh. Uh, I would have had multiple things on my, yeah. I mean, I just know it. Yeah. I just know it. And I yeah. want to, you know, so is that controversial? To I don't say think on this that's podcast? controversial to, to me. I mean, it's a uh, controversial. If, if you look at a pie chart, yeah. you know, it's not hard to tell who's in prison, who's getting arrested, who's getting yeah. in trouble. And that's, um, you know, there's something systemic in that. I won't get yeah. too much into politics, right? But I, I, I will say that I tried to keep a pretty clean haircut yeah. and tried to use deodorant uh, and tried to keep yeah. my car relatively clean. Yeah. So when I inevitably would get pulled over, mm -hmm. uh, I might I might have seemed like a, just a good kid mm -hmm. who's having a bad night, yeah. you know, as opposed to a, a bad kid who's having a bad life. 
me know. too. I tried to, well, my dad told me some stuff that I, that I used every time I got pulled over. He yep. told me, um, if you look at the steering wheel of a car, you know, you look at it like a face of a clock straight yep. up is 12 o'clock far right is three o'clock straight down at six o'clock far left is nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. He goes, what I want you to do when you get pulled over is I want you to have your hands visible at all times as the officer approach your car, take mm-hmm. your right hand and put it at the 12 o'clock position, put your left hand, put it at the 11 o'clock position and mm-hmm. keep your hands there and visible the entire time. Yeah. I want you to use the word, sir. constantly yes sir no sir make sure they can see your hands don't make any sudden moves uh do anything they want have your driver's license ready have your insurance uh, ready be respectful don't be a smart ass so i followed a lot of his dictates and edicts but i was able to skate a lot on the color of my skin i think it's not confirmed but i'm 99.9 percent sure that that's what happened and so i i don't know if i need to I don't even know how to feel about it. Like, yeah. do I need to apologize to my brothers that yeah. are of, you know, non-white colored that yeah. I'm sorry. What do I say? I'm sorry that that, that, that happened to you in yeah. the 80s, 90s, and 2000s? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny because now, you know, now you're bursting my bubble on how smart I was. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And I, I will say that I have spent a good amount of time over the last couple of years kind of reflecting you know, on what, what is something that I could do, you know, just like you said, what, what is it that we're supposed to be doing now to try to make amends for some of those things? And I think a lot of that becomes around kind of the, the dialogue there and opening up that kind of dialogue as best you can with folks. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to, to broach, but the communication is important, right? So, yeah. And the, luckily for me, I'm in a position where I'm uh, in currently and actively every day raising the next generation of Americans, yeah. which is my son. He lives in my house. God, so much different. He's a baby. And it's, so he's receiving so much different information yeah. from me than he did than I did from my mom and dad. 100%. And not that my mom and dad are bad, but they yep. did not give me the same information that yep. I'm that I'm arming and educating my son with and yep. the world is speaking to him in different ways and I'm just all about uh, inclusion and love and and trying to um, bring the world together a little bit more yeah. than, than it was in the love past. It. Love it. Um, so did you ever use any techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking? I think for me, the idea of controlling would mean that I was not enjoying. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There would be times where I would perform that experiment like it would talk about in the book, but I didn't know I was doing that because I hadn't been exposed to AA yet, but which Mm -hmm. was, I'm just going to have three drinks tonight, right? To where literally like I would show up somewhere with three beers and these are the three beers that I'm going to (laughs) have. And sometimes that, no, not really. I mean, (laughs) sometimes it would, but, but you know, I'm, I'm exactly what it talks about in in the book. Um, uh, you know, where, uh, and I'll, I'll read it as we, uh, later as we go, that first part of We Agnostics. But, mm-hmm. you know, anytime I tried to control it, there was just no doing it. Anytime I tried to stop, uh, it was for a short period of time. You know, I, I just, I couldn't, I definitely couldn't control and enjoy. Tried, but couldn't. Talk to me a little bit about what, 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 what was it? What pushed you over the edge? What made you realize you had a problem? What, did you go to a treatment center? Did you go to a hospital? Did you go to jail? How did you get sober? What so happened? So at that time, treatment centers were real in vogue, right? And Big so uh, late 80s, people are going to treatment centers. Obviously, as I've described my friend group, a lot of those guys went to treatment, right? They're getting in trouble with their folks and their folks are sending them to treatment to get better. And of course, you know, not exactly a supportive friend when they're getting back from treatment. I'm, you know, throwing a kegger for them and, and uh, hey, man, you're back. You survived, you know, and so they would they would tell me about what they perceived to be the horrors of treatment. And the horrors of treatment was basically you couldn't drink or smoke for 30 days, you know, 60 days, 90 days. So obviously not at a bottom, not ready to listen. And 
And so what had happened to me was, as I was going to school, school knew what I was doing. They knew I was selling drugs. They knew I was drinking. They never caught me in the sense that they could have prosecuted me in some way or suspended me in some way, but they would call my house and talk to my dad and explain to them what they thought was happening, right? And so these calls started to become more frequent my senior year of high school. And by the time I had gotten a pretty serious call home, I was going to have to put a more... um, uh, a better foot forward, right? A better mea culpa than just looking down at my shoes and saying, I'm sorry, and I won't do it again. And so something crazy had kind of happened. What The lady who ended up being my dad's third wife, they were dating, and the she had two daughters, and her oldest daughter was my age and was one year sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. So obviously God doing for me what I could not do for myself. Clearly going over to that uh, girlfriend's house with the daughters there. Uh, they could see what was going on, right? There's no, there's no fool in one of us. And so I was not fooling her. I have no doubt that she was having side conversations with my dad about ways that she could help. I know that she was trying to be helpful and not trying to like dime me out, right? Mm-hmm. She, she saw what I was doing. And so at some point in time, uh, after that last trouble, I said, you know what? Cause my dad was talking about sending me to treatment and I knew I didn't want to do that. I also did not want to stop. I just wanted the heat to die down. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I will go to one of these AA meetings with my uh, future stepsister. Right. And, and so that was my first entree into AA. It was January 1st of 1990. That was the first meeting I ever went to it was January 1st of 1990. Wow. And, but you really had no interest in going, No right? interest. You were just trying to fake yep. the funk a little bit. No interest. And if you would have told me that two weeks after that day was going to be my permanent sobriety day, I would have thought you were crazy. I mean, I went to that first meeting. It was at the Unity Group in Austin mm-hmm. uh, off of Far West. It's not there anymore. It was in a strip center. It was a cool little meeting. It had a downstairs that had folding chairs probably, I don't know, 40 folding chairs. And then it had a loft upstairs that had like a couple of couches and a couple of rocking chairs and a couple of lazy boys. Mm-hmm. And, and so my first time going to that meeting, I, I had seen, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Clean and Sober that's got Michael Keaton in it. That movie was out by then. And so I had seen that movie. And so this was a lot of like dark room with one light, dude smoking and, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And so I, I had, that was my perception of what AA was, was based on that movie Clean and Sober. And so this was a little bit brighter room, but it was a similar vibe. Now this somehow happened to be a non-smoking meeting, which was very rare in 1990. And I obviously gravitated towards more towards the smoking meetings later, but this meeting was a no smoking meeting. We showed up a little bit early. Now I will say that as part of going to meetings, and controlling my drinking, I had a couple of cases of Shiner Bach left. And so I had had a couple of beers before that first AA meeting, take the edge off, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so was not drunk, probably people probably didn't even notice. I mean, at that point in time, you know, a couple of beers and a joint probably would have gotten to me to where, pe- you know, my normal state, right? Where people would normally have seen me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do remember feeling uncomfortable in that meeting, uh, uncomfortable because I was lying, uncomfortable because I got a desire chip and said that I had a desire to stop drinking when I didn't, uncomfortable because people came up to me after the meeting and wanted to talk to me and give me their phone number and, and you know, ask me if I had a book and all those kind of wonderful things that people do in AA that felt uncomfortable to me in my first meeting. The basket got passed, we held hands, uh, I was kind of with you at that point, 
Um, it was not possible for me to love God and love drugs and alcohol as much as I did. And so I did not love God anymore and love drugs and alcohol. And anybody who loved God, I thought was an idiot. Uh, I was very, I thought I was very smart and very intellectual. And so I was very disappointed to find out that God was the answer, (laughs) right? You know, uh, when I don't know that I got much out of that meeting, except it felt like church, people talked about God and, um, I just needed to kind of struggle through that meeting. And at the end of that meeting, we got back in the car. Amy was the lady's name, and, and Amy looked at me, and she said, what do you think? And I was like, oh, I thought it was great. You know, can't wait to stay sober the rest of my life. And she was like, well, keep coming back. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, they recommend 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was like, what? I've got to do this for 90 days? And I didn't say that, but I just remember thinking that. But I, I got myself in enough trouble, and I didn't want to go to treatment. And I knew this lady needed to give me a good report. So I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll come back with you tomorrow. So she chauffeured me around to, to meetings for a little while. I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned yeah. a minute ago. You made the statement that you had to have a couple beers and a joint just to get back to normal. Yeah. And I re- reflect on the end of my drinking career. I realized in my mind cognitively, because I'm smart enough to figure this out, that I was drinking every day. Yep. And I was drinking every day, no matter what was going on that day. Mm-hmm. Like the days would maybe change with my responsibilities and where I was supposed right. to be. But the fact that I was going to be inebriated was non-negotiable. Yep. That was still going to happen. Yep. <laughs> I would just have to try to affect all the yep. responsibilities that I had on a daily basis. But I was still going to be drunk. And, and I just remember thinking, man, Mike, you're drinking a lot. And it seems like you're drinking in the morning and smoking weed in the morning and doing all this just to get normal, dude. Yeah. You're just you're just trying to get back yeah. to baseline. Yes. And all you've got to do today is like go to the grocery store mm-hmm. and try to get some food. Or you gotta maybe go run an errand and, and drop off something at a particular store that you're gonna pick up later. You can't even do that, which is normal stuff that normal humans do without being drunk or high. So you're mm-hmm. using just to get normal, dude. Yeah. And I would think that to myself and I would be horrified. Yep. And I'd be like, yo, I'm so lost in the sauce, man. I am so yeah. trapped. I'm like an animal in a trap with this stuff. But then, of course, my disease would be like, whatever. You know, yeah. I can't not drink, yeah. so forget it. I remember that last couple of years of drinking. If there was something that I could fit inside of daily drinking and drug use, I would do it. But if it didn't fit inside of daily drinking and drug use, I just wouldn't do it. And so then I'm showing up for Thanksgiving lit up. You know, mm-hmm. and no choice. I'm not staying. I mean, literally like leaving Thanksgiving to go smoke weed in my car. I, I can only imagine what that must have felt like to the rest of my family as I'm coming back in. There's 20 people around the table and I, you know, I, you know, smell like a, you know, how else do you smell when you smoke weed in your car? It must have been terrible. And so I, I'm with you, man. That, that, was, that was not partying. I was not partying having a couple of beers before the meeting. I was, I was getting, trying to get to level. Yeah, me too. I feel like I was trying to maintain my alcoholism. There were plenty of times um, that I had to do the same thing. I'll give you, I'll tell you another story yeah. I've never told on this podcast. Yeah. There, I had a, I had a girlfriend, a different girl, gorgeous again, long story short, she was in a severe drunk driving accident, mm. really bad oh compound fractures, uh, skin grafts, months in the hospital. Wow. Long story short, I moved into the hospital to mm-hmm. be with her. I slept on the floor every night for months and I don't talk about this. I don't even know if my wife knows this story. Yeah. I don't, nobody really knows this story. And so I would just, I would sleep on the hospital floor every night in Ventura, California and San Francisco, California, because we had to get, you know, moved to another place where they could do more bone grafts and mm-hmm. skin grafts and muscle 
graphs and long story short, it was horrible. And long story short, I would be there 24 hours a day, all day, every day for months, sleeping on the floor and just, and, and, and uh, but the thing, I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is because I had to go outside every two to three hours to drink and smoke marijuana mm-hmm. in the parking lot because yeah. I was an active alcoholic and a drug addict. I couldn't handle what was going on. I mean, I could, I was acting like I could handle what yep. was going on, yep. but I really didn't have the tools to cope with her alcoholism and the results of that, which was the drunk driving accident, which was the injuries, which was the hospital. So she put us in a bad place with her alcoholism and I couldn't deal with that because I was an alcoholic too and a drug addict Mm -hmm. too. So now I'm in the car every day, multiple times a day in the hospital Mm -hmm. parking lot, smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol on a daily basis so I can get my body back inside the hospital to try to help her, you know, walk again and not die of the injuries that she sustained in this massive multiple rollover vehicle accident. And so I just remember being lost and sad and lonely and and just, I would sit in my car and I, and trust me when I was smoking weed in the parking lot and drinking in the parking lot at hospital and making myself go back in there, uh, I was not having fun. No, it was not party time. I was not like, Oh, I'm high. This is awesome. Dude. I was maintaining. I was like trying to get back to level. I was trying to get to normal mm-hmm. so I could um, get back inside there because I didn't have any of the skills, the the human skills. If something like that happened today, I would have so many different spiritual tools and so many different ways to approach that that um, it would just be a much better situation. Yeah. But I was doing the best I could at the time. So let's talk about, did you ever have a moment of clarity? It sounds like maybe in the first 14 days of your yep. sobriety that, that moved your you know vision from I'm here because my stepsister soon to be is bringing me to these meetings yep. and I'm not sure if I want to stay sober. And then all of a sudden you had a sobriety date two, two weeks later. Yep. What, what happened? Was there a moment of clarity? There was definitely a moment of clarity. So I, I kept, we went to meetings every day. I kept drinking before meetings and I'm sure that, you know, went from two to three to four to six to however many, right? I'm sure I'm buying myself more in that process. And I didn't, I didn't do any drugs because drugs are bad, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I was drinking on January 12th of 1990. We used to go to Coco's. I don't even know if Coco's is still yeah, around yeah. anymore. But that it, place is good. Yeah, dude. It was, uh, it was like the It's Denny's. like a Denny's. Yeah. yeah. It's like a Marie Calendar's, and a Denny's, a IHOP. you cigarettes and <laughs> eat pancakes and drink coffee. The AA after party location. And it was, you know, at the time, you know, in the, in the 90s, early 90s, I remember going to a lot of 8 o'clock meetings, you know, and 7 o'clock meetings. So it was always a night meeting and you'd always go to eat afterwards. And so we ate afterwards and I, I was at Coco's and I was probably pretty drunk. And one of the guys who I had been actively avoiding, I think his name was Justin, he was at Coco's and he came over to the booth, you know, and he wanted to have a conversation with me. This is one of those pull aside conversations, right? He was one of the guys talking about God in the meeting and waving the book around and, uh, you know, talking about his spiritual experience. And he was a couple of years sober and, uh, and he pulled me to the side. And what I later found out was he w- there was like a mini group conscience meeting after where uh, they said, hey, Justin, when you're at Coco's, could you talk to this guy and ask him, you know? Uh, and, and so Justin said, hey, man, when are you going to stop drinking? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Got my chip, right? <laughs> and, um, and he said, yeah. He said, but we, you know, kind of everybody knows that you've been drinking and then coming to meetings. And I got my first little grain of honesty. And this was the truth for me at Coco's on January 12th of 1990. And the truth was... You know what? I think I have a problem with drugs, but I don't think alcohol is a problem. And he said, "Great." He said, "If alcohol's not a problem, then not drinking should be easy." Right? And I just remember 
it was like in the sixth sense when that ring is rolling across the floor, you know, and you realize what's been going on the whole movie. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that is got to be the absolute gospel that if drinking is not a problem for me, then not drinking should be easy. And I, I, I must have stood, stood there looking at him for a pretty good amount of time. I, I just didn't know what to say. You know, I've always been the smart guy with the witty comment, you know, and I had no witty comment to come back for this. And, and that statement sunk in with me. And I remember going back home and that tape just played in my head. And it wasn't a resentful tape necessarily. I had a lot of resentful tapes that were going on then. It was not a resentful tape. It was, it was more of a, a close as I could come to self-reflection at that point. And I said, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to try not to drink before the meeting. And somehow that is my permanent sobriety date. Wow. I, I got to that meeting the next day. Uh, I don't know what DTs are necessarily. I, I just know that I felt like I had the flu. Um, I felt physically ill that next day. I was so physically ill the next couple of weeks that my dad took me to the emergency room twice. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I'd get fluids and they would check all my vitals and I would explain to them, you know, withdrawing from alcohol and drugs. But I do remember sitting in that meeting on January 13th, and I was not comfortable. I did not feel good. Uh, I wanted to drink. Um, uh, and, but I, I, I stayed sober that day. And, and a lot of that was going to school, uh, going home, um, going to the meeting, going to Coco's, and doing it again, and not hanging out with friends. You know, there was a lot of treatment speak in the meetings in the 90s, and one of the treatment speak was uh, switch your play places, play friends, you know, play things. And that's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that was something that came from treatment, not from the book. And I couldn't avoid my playmates. I was having to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And that was where the, all the dirtiest things were happening for me was at school. And so I didn't have that as an option. Um, and, and so I, I very much tried to avoid those people. Uh, um, and, and so that, that end of January in 1990 was not a good couple of weeks for me, not a good month for me. Um, that first month of sobriety, I was really hanging on to that seat, wanting to drink, wanting to drug, uh, wanting to do anything to feel different than I was feeling in that meeting. Do you have any advice for anybody under 21 that's, that's trying to get sober special advice since you were been, you've been there, you walked that pass. Let me just, I'll say two things. One is the first advice I would give to anybody is if they're willing to get on their knees and ask God for help, that's the thing to do, right? Okay. Um, when, when I have guys that I work with or guys that are calling me, asking me for, hey, man, this thing is going on. The first thing I ask them is, has you've prayed about it? You know, because um, I am beyond human aid uh, and I need God in my life, right? If I, if I was to say some anecdotal things that helped me when I was in my experience, right, when I first was young and getting sober, one of the things that was huge for me was finding other young people in sobriety. You know, I had this young person that I was going with to the meeting. I mentioned that loft at the unity group. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where all the young people sat. And so once I kind of graduated to somebody who looked like they were going to stay, I got to make some friends and we would sit up on those couches in the loft. That'd be cool. Yeah, and we went to Westlake Group uh, in Austin. There was no young people's meetings in Austin at that time, but Westlake Group was where a lot of the young people went. Bolden Group was a lot of a place where a lot of the young people went. And so I started to have friends in sobriety, places that I could go on a Friday night and hang out. And while I was still holding on to my chair, it made it seem a lot more possible because I've never had a legal drink. 
right? I mean, and when I got sober, I'm more than three years away from my first legal drink. And so the idea that I was going to turn 21 and not have a big party seemed crazy, you know? Um, and so being able to be around these young people who, who alcohol had been the central figure in their lives at some point, and now they were totally relieved of that obsession and were able to go on having these normal, happy, fun lives that didn't involve alcohol. That was really critical for me early on. Um, and this friend group that I got into was that friend group was like, do you have a sponsor? Oh, you don't have a sponsor? Well, I'm your sponsor. Here's a book. We're working steps together. So, <laughs> you know, that other part of that advice is I'm surrounding myself with people that are doing the deal, mm -hmm. right? And so when you surround yourself with people that are doing the deal, um, you also have to do the deal. You can't sit around people who are actively working the program, being sponsored and sponsoring people, going to meetings, having service commitments, doing the work and not do the work. They don't let you be a part of that group. You, you, you have to get involved. And I got involved and then I became the guy who made other people get involved. If you're going to be in, in our group, you got to get involved. And so I, it was, you hear people say, get in the car. I fell into a get in the car group and it was really cool. What would you say? And I thousand percent agree with everything that you just said, but what would you say to somebody, a young person that heard what you just said, which is a great recipe for getting sober yep. young and having great life. What if, what would you say to a person who heard all that and looked you dead in the eye and said, uh, yeah, that sounds horrifying to yeah. me. Would you please tell them that a, it's not horrifying yeah. and B it's fun. I mean, can you paint a little bit of a picture yeah. that it's not as bad as it sounds? Cause it sounds like you're describing yeah. if you were 17 or 18 or 16 or 19 or 20 and you heard this podcast and what you just said, they'd be like, what? Yeah. No way. Well, guess what? It's not that bad, right? Yeah. If that sounds horrifying <laughs> sounds to you, horrifying. welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> right? Because, yeah. uh, uh, I was horrified too. Me too. Let me give you some horrified I didn't stories. Want to do it either. Yeah, let me give you some horrified stories, right? For one thing, I showed up to my first meeting and they're talking about God and waving the book around. And I'm like, I immediately wrote it off. You might as well have told me that magic was going to keep me sober. Like this was, that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. After I got sober, I remember a group of the young guys were like, Hey man, we're all going to go bowling after the meeting. And I'm like, one, that sounds lame. Um, and two, uh, I got nothing else to do, so sure, I'll go bowling with you. <laughs> and I just remember us going bowling, and I remember thinking, we're finally going to let our hair down, right? Because everybody <laughs> in the meeting was talking about how happy they were and how great things were going, but it, they were all miserable on the inside like I was, and so we were going to go to this bowling alley and talk about how miserable we were, and they never did, mm -hmm. right? They never talked about how miserable they were. It was when I finally was able to get a little bit of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, when that was able to come to me, everything else came so much easier. I remember sitting across that sponsor who had got me, right, and said, I'm your sponsor. We read through We Agnostics. I'd read through We Agnostics, and he said, we're going to talk about steps two and three. And so we show up to this meeting. It's going to be the two of us. It was at the Unity Group before we started. We got up into the loft at like 7 o'clock before the 8 o'clock meeting. We opened up set up the chairs, got the coffee made, and now we're going to have our third step discussion. And I just remember telling him, I just remember I had started to get honest, right? And that honesty was, I don't want to be here. I don't think I can stop drinking for the rest of my life. Um, and all this seems like BS, right? And so I, I sat across from that guy and I was ready to tell him how much I didn't want to do this. And all he said to me was, 
do you think you have a problem? I said, yes. And he said, do you think there's a solution to your problem? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to go with that solution? And I said, yes. And he said, great, let's get on our knees and pray. And, and now in the book, after the third step prayer, it says, we thought well before taking this step, right? <laughs> and he and I didn't do that. I will say that we talked about it afterwards. And I said, I think this is dumb. I don't think it's going to work. And he said, great, if you're willing to do it anyway, you're still going to get the same result. Bill does, Bill is one of the greatest salesmen of all time. And you can, you can, you can see Bill's sales in one sentence in We Agnostics. Step two, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe in a power greater than myself? And at the time, the most I could muster up was, I believe that you believe, but that was enough. He said, you might have a spiritual experience after you say the third step. That's not what the book describes. The book says by the time you get to step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, he said, if we do the work together honestly and thoroughly and you get to 12 and you don't feel differently, you can go to do something else. But all these things that you're chasing that you think are the problem aren't the problem. The problem is you have lack of power and we need to tap you into some power, right? Because I thought my problem is my dad won't leave me alone. I'm failing out of school. The girl doesn't like me. My job sucks. People disrespect me. Uh, I'm not as handsome as I want to be. I'm not as buff as I want to be. I, whatever it is, right? All these perceptions of problems. And then I learned after coming into to AA that, you know, my problem is not what I see is my problem. My problem is how I feel about my problem, right? And, and when God is in charge, that problem, I don't know, I'm about to go off on a really long tangent that we'll talk about later, but I, I feel like your sponsor, you come to your sponsor with my house is on fire and he's like, cool, paint the fence. And you're like, dude, that house is never going to get put out if I go and paint this fence. But suddenly I'm painting the fence and the house on fire doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Totally. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of truth. I mean, there's a hundred percent truth in what you just said. I, I came in early as well as a young person and, um, I had a lot of thoughts like, okay, uh, my first thought was exact one you had. I'm, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem with drugs. I don't have a problem with alcohol. And I remember telling them that in the treatment center, I went to Timberlawn. I went to a treatment center called Timberlawn and I was talking to the counselors there and they're like, what's your deal? I was like, yo, I'm a drug addict, dude. And they're like, okay, well you need to go to AA. I was like, for what? I was like, I just told you I'm a drug addict, not an alcoholic. I like drinking. I'm good at that. I can handle that. It's just I can't. The drugs get me out of control. And so we had to jump that hurdle. And anyways, they sent me to AA, and I didn't want to go. I had no desire to go. I was too young, and I got there, and it was not what I thought it was going to be when I got there. Yep. And then I found out. I won't go into any, any really nuances or details, but I will tell you, within the first month or two, I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's a lot of nice people here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that aren't trying to um, live fake lives. They all appear to be telling the truth. They all appear to be to some level of happiness. They have what I want. There's actually a lot of young people here. I was shocked about that. Yeah. Uh, they did a lot of things that I thought were kind of nerdy at first, but then I ended up really enjoying them. For example, after the meetings, they would all get together in the parking lot and smoke cigarettes and the stuff, and they'd be like, okay, well, let's all go to Luby's. And Luby's is a cafeteria. Oh, yeah. It's a restaurant cafeteria. Love me and the Luby's platter. Yeah, and everybody would, everybody would get jacked up because uh. somebody would be like, let's go to Luby's. And then like 10 people would be like, yeah, let's go to Luby's. And I was like, yo, these kids. So and they're young. Good, they were younger kids, dude. And so they're like, good. we're all going to Luby's. And I was like, oh, my God, you nerds, dude. 
So, but guess what? I would go anyway. I didn't want to go, but I would go because everybody was going. And then guess what? I would have fun at Luby's for like two or three hours. We would sit there and have so much fun. And I would go home. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that. You know, you can't intellectualize the first step, right? You can't intellectualize the first step experience. I don't believe that I'm going to sit across from somebody and convince them, right? You gotta. You have to be convinced. Yeah. Uh, Alcohol and, and drugs will do that. And I and they do. And I, 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 you know, for me, it's like, what do you got to lose to give it a try? You know, give it a try and see what happens. Some people are willing to do that. Some people aren't. I, I do know that a lot of times young people come in and the seed gets planted, right? And then they go off and and try, and they come back, and you know, you mm-hmm. don't have to go back and forth. I hope that. People don't, right? Uh, but I think you, you got to have your first step experience. And I can tell you that first step experience can be, you know, a life sentence in prison. Uh, and that first step experience can be, I got busted my senior year of high school and a phone call went home and I decided I needed to give AA a try. You know, there's, a, there's such a broad range. The elevator continues to go down, but you can get off whenever you want. Um, and, and so I, I, I do see a lot of younger people coming in now and staying. They didn't come in and stay before. I have a core group of guys who came in, you know, that I'm a handful of friends, but, you know, there's hundreds of people that I've met as a teenager in Alcoholics Anonymous that aren't here today and only a handful that, that are there from when I first started. Mm-hmm. It's not the easiest thing to do. I get it. Um, uh, but, man, it's, it's there for you if you want it. Yeah, I agree. And we're not, this is not necessarily young people in Alcoholics Anonymous podcast, but that's kind of your story. And so I do want to say it's what I lean into for sure. It won't be the last time we talk about it. I'll tell you that right now. Exactly. And so one other thing I want to throw out there to people that have no clue or don't have a lot of experience with what we're talking about. There are kind of specifically young people's groups uh, designed for younger members. So you can go to meetings with people that are closer to your age demographic and yep. figure out what they do. There's also big conferences for young people in recovery, and those are those are a lot of fun. Let as well. me dust off my soapbox for a minute, <laughs> if I might. Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> I love YPAW. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the conferences. I love the meetings. I love the vibe. I love Tell the them what that energy. means. People know. Uh, young people in AA. Okay. So <clears throat> there are young people's meetings. We have some here in DFW. Uh, there are young people's conferences. There are city conferences. There are state conferences. There are area conferences. There's an international conference. It is the most irreverent, raucous, fun demonstration of recovery that I have ever seen. You either love it or you don't, right? And it's okay if you don't. But I will also say that people know know me and know that I'm involved in that. And some people don't understand. Oh, is that separate? Why do we do that? Why do you have to identify in that way, right? And I will tell you, for me, I needed a group of young people uh, when I first got sober. That's what I needed was a group of young people when I first got sober. I needed people that I could date in sobriety, right? Because mm-hmm. nobody nobody wants to date a sober 18-year-old. Very few people want to do that aside from other people in the program. People don't want to be friends with the sober 18-year-old. Everybody's having fun, you know? Uh, um, I needed people to go and have fun with that was a very safe place that wasn't going to be about drinking and doing drugs. I didn't need to be around old people all the time. I didn't want to go and hang out with old people at Coco's for the rest of my life. I wanted to hang out with some young people. Go into those conferences, go into either a young people's meeting or a meeting that a good amount of young people, that saved my life. Tens of thousands of young people's lives have been saved by other young people in AA. Right. 
Even though, you know, you can come here as a young person and get a lot of information in your head and then go back out and use again or you use a treatment center or relapse. Yep. But you can also get a lot of information downloaded into your body and your brain and your soul that you can use five years, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years later in your walk of life if the alcoholism thing is a real thing for you when it comes back up. Yep. You can learn a lot of things that are really valuable to you later. For example, we believe that it's a disease concept. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to come to AA for a number of days, weeks, months, or years and get a lot of information into your brain and then put booze back into your system and your yep. body. And you, you, that's at some point it's hard because you have a belly full of booze and a head full of AA and it's hard for any human being to unknow something. Yep. Once you know something, it's super hard mm-hmm. to unknow that. So it really is to your benefit to get as much information in your brain and your body and your soul as possible. And that's what happened for me. I got sober at 19 and stayed sober for three years until I was 21. And then I relapsed for eight years. And I drank every day for eight years from like 21 to like 30. And then I got sober at 30. But during that eight-year relapse from ages 21 to 30, I was drinking and drugging every day. But I knew who and what I was. Mm -hmm. And who and what I was was an active alcoholic and an active drug addict. Now, I tried to ignore that. Mm -hmm. And I tried to not know that. And I tried to not feel that and connect with that and forget about the fact that I had already been in AA for two and a half years and had the literature and had a sponsor and had a spiritual experience and had the chips and the whole deal. Um, But eventually what happened is I was persuaded to come back in again and try again because alcohol and drug addiction administered a custom tailored ass whipping for me. Yep. Custom tailored for me yep. uh, to get my attention. And what I think happened when I look back in hindsight is that God was trying to get my attention with my alcohol and drug addiction mm-hmm. because I wasn't paying attention to him. Yep. And so he was like, uh, got my attention. He really got my attention. And, and another thing I want to tell you is that my mom, who paid for me to go to treatment at $1,000 a day times 30 days, which is $30,000, and I was drinking and drugging again for eight years after she paid that $30,000, she did not forget that I was sober from ages 19 to 21. And so guess what she did, which I did not know. She kept my original big book, which I have in my possession today. And in that, where I opened that big book, my original sobriety is five, seven, 89. And I wrote five, seven, 89. And she also kept my two-year sobriety chip. And I did not know that because I was drinking and drugging every day for eight years, but she saved my big book. When I relapse, and she say my two-year chip when I relapse. Wow. So I, I come back in at age 30, and uh, I get sober again. I tell her, I'm like, yo, mom, I'm sober again, and blah, blah, blah. And so she waits. She doesn't give it to me right away. Yep. She waits. Right. Make sure you're not burning it up, <laughs> yeah. throwing it in the trash. She's like, I held on to this yeah, thing. Yeah, she waits a little bit. And then I think when I had a year, year and a half, she, she goes, I got something for you. And I, she went in the other room, and she gave me my wow. old big book back. And I had not seen it in like a decade. And so I looked at it, and I was like, what's this? She's like, it's your old big book from the last time you were sober as a teenager. I was like, okay. And so I opened it up, and I looked at it, and it said 5789. And I was like, okay, hold on, Mom. And so I went over to the kitchen, and I grabbed a pencil. It's actually a pen. And I drew a line through 5789, and I wrote 1010-2000. Yeah, man. Because that's my new sobriety date. But But I still have my old sobriety date with the old sobriety date. Yeah, man. 11 years sober or 11 years uh-huh. prior, crossed it out, put my new one. Yeah. And then she waited another six months until I got my two-year sobriety chip. And she came to birthday night at the Aquarius group. And she was there and blah, blah, blah. And long story short, I get up and get my chip. The guy hands me a chip. 
And then afterwards, my mom lo- tells me she loves me, hugs me, reached in her pocket, Ugh. and pulls out my two-year chip and gave that's it to special. me. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, that's your two-year chip from when you were a teenager. <laughs> that's crazy. Dude, like, I still had it. Yeah. Here's your two-year chip from when you were a teenager. And I was like, oh, my God. So I gave the random one back that I got from the speaker that night. Right. And I put that back on the podium, and I kept yeah. that to your chip. But the reason I even tell you that story is because I had a lot of information downloaded in me and my first attempt as a teenager to try to get sober and alcoholics anonymous that did not take or, you know, flower or mature until later. And so the last thing I want to say, and then I'll let you talk again is if you think about my first sobriety date, which was five, seven, 89, and then you look at my original, my real sobriety date, which now is 10, 10, 2000, that's an 11 year span. Okay. So during that 11 year span, I went to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of AA meetings and I took thousands and thousands and thousands of drinks. So it took me hundreds of AA meetings and thousands of drinks from my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous to my sobriety date. So what I'm trying to do verbally here is paint a picture for you listeners out there and let you know that if you're somewhere in that scenario that I was between your first sobriety date and the real one that takes off and takes a hold, it's okay. And my experience is I had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of meetings and thousands and thousands of drinks during that 11 years, but I was able, or God was able, I don't know what happened, but on 10, 10, 2000, that ended up being my real sobriety date. Man. And I'm grateful for that. And Oof. it's all the direct result of coming in as a teenager, even though I didn't want to. Yep. I was forced into this deal. Yeah, I, I think uh, what a powerful story that is. You know, we think um, our drinking and our sobriety is personal and doesn't affect people. Your mom saved the big book for 11 years, bro. Yeah. I mean, you want to think that might have been meaningful to her? It was in her you closet. Know? I mean. Uh, uh, and didn't tell me. Pretty cool. And I, I think, you know, I think. People can sometimes, when they're new and come to meetings, get wrapped up in, am I done, right? Who knows, yeah. right? But to your point, get what you can while you're here. Who knows? You may be done, you know, and uh, I hope that people come in and get done. But I hear a lot of stories like, like yours, people come in young, but, but I, I love the idea that you got enough of the program in your mind uh, that you, you got funneled back to it. I knew where to go when I hit bottom. Yeah, man. When I hit bottom at 9.30 p.m. on October the 9th of the year 2000 on a street called Acacia in Carlsbad, California, I hit bottom so hard, and I knew where to go. Yep. When I lived in Austin, uh, when I was first getting sober, now when you're 18, 19, nobody wants you to be their sponsor, right? Uh, (laughs) Nobody coming up to a 19-year-old asking to be their sponsor. So we used to go to this place called Lavender House. Uh, It was a treatment center in Austin. I don't think it's there anymore. And it was specialized in young people. And we would take a meeting into Lavender House. And we ended up sponsoring a lot of those kids in Lavender House. And they were only there for 30 days if I remember that correctly. And we would sponsor them basically kind of through the first three steps and then get them started on the four step and then never hear from them again. Um, And I got a lot of, I got a lot of one through three in my head from that when I first started. And and I don't know, I hope some of those people got something great out of that 30 days and were able to do something uh, with it later. But it's not an unusual story for people to uh, get funneled to something like a treatment or to AA uh, as a teenager and, and not stick around. Yeah, a lot of the guys I sponsor are coming out of treatment centers, and they yep. use the word like they say "laha," which is I guess yes, short for dude. "laha yeah, sienda, and they say "burning tree," yeah, and they say all it these. Sounds real cool, like you went off to like yeah. a music festival or something. They say the know? names of all these places, and I'm assuming <laughs> I'm like, okay, those are treatment centers. And then I'm like, okay, they're like, will you sponsor me? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, have you done the steps? And they're like, kind of. Yeah. I did them in treatment. I did one, two, three, and four, and I kind of did five with my counselor, and right. that's it. And so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, okay. I know. So, so funny. I, I, uh, uh, I, I get this, I get the same thing from guys and, and I think treatment's great. I think 
we used to call treatment the, you know, $30,000 big book, you know, I mean, that was, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of what it ends up being, you know, the, the treatment center does the same thing everybody else does. Like you should go to meetings, you should go to a halfway house after, and you should go to meetings after. I'd like to read some announcements for you guys. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that I can play back on a later episode, and you can hear your own voice on the podcast. Or you can send me a voicemail directly to mike at sobershares.com that you record on your own phone with whichever app you want, and I'll play that back on the next show. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on the sobershares.com. This donation process will take less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content at the highest level. Think of it like passing a basket at a meeting to help keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses like website hosting, and uh, we also have some monthly expenses that we use for our uh, editing equipment. I want to mention to our listeners uh, by name who have made financial gifts in the last couple of days to move this project forward. David R, Stacy P, and David Z. Awesome. Thank you for that. I want to assure you guys that I value your time and attention as a listener. Our sole focus here at Sober Shares is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here and every decision we make. Now I want to take this opportunity to read some reviews that we received recently. We've got a bunch of reviews coming in on the website and also on Apple Podcasts and then directly on our website. So here's the first one, and this is submitted by Blue Water 911 A++++ podcast. I'm so blessed to have stumbled onto this podcast. All of the guest speakers have been wonderful, and the host comes across in a very hum- as a very humble man who is also quite funny when expounding on his own life story. A plus podcast. This next one is by Big Texas Daddy, number one recovery podcast. Real talk on alcohol and drug addiction recovery. I've learned so many useful tools to stay sober. Thank you. The next one is by Sunny Dallas, and they spell it S U N N I E Dallas. Sober Shares helps me stay sober. This podcast helps me to understand the deeper meanings of the long term sobriety. The guests and hosts are super on point with the AA message. The next one is um, by somebody called Help. Looks like it says Help One and then Save Two. Uh, my favorite recovery podcast. These interviews are so interesting, and the host knows this material very well. I've learned so many recovery tools by listening to each guest's sober life experience. This next one is by Faze Macaroni, and they spell it F A Z E Macaroni. Keep it simple. Excellent 12 step recovery interviews. Real life stories that anyone can relate to. So much fun to hear the answers to each thoughtful question. This next one comes to us from Greg P. I am learning about gaining freedom from the bondage of self from this podcast and learning to care more about myself and others. And then there's another one by Thomas Y. He's been sober for 60 days and living substance free. So I guess he's just checking us in and telling us that. Another one is by Irene S., I am living my best sober life and enjoying your show while I am learning new tools to make to take my life to the next level one day at a time. This next one is by Ben G. I relapsed tonight, but I am listening to the Sober Shares podcast anyway. Okay, thank you, Ben G. Paula Adams, anxiously awaiting your next episode release. I love your show. 
Jacqueline W. Thanks for caring and making these episodes. I will be listening. This next one's a little long. This is by a listener named Bridget. I found your podcast through an online support group called Sober Mom Squad, and it is very refreshing. Sometimes I feel stagnant in my recovery and need refreshing information. I just listened to Vanessa, and it was great. I will be 1.5 years sober next week, and my husband will be six months sober next month. Our relationship has healed and grown so much since our sobriety began. I almost instantly started to value myself upon day one of my sobriety. And after hearing Pete K's story in episode number 12, it makes me grateful that I am raising my nine-month-old son in a, ho- in a sober home. With that being said, I truly hope that Pete and his son find healing soon. Anyways, thanks for your podcast. So thank you for everybody reaching out and giving us some listener feedback. I really have enjoyed reading those and receiving those in the email. I wanted to uh, thank you guys out there and let you know that we surpassed the 6,000 download total play episode marker here, uh, right around our four-month anniversary of being active. So in the first four months, we've received 6,000 total plays. Thank you for that. Also wanted to let you know about the audience details of the geographical regions where this podcast is being heard. 79% of our listeners are in the United States of America, 9% are in Canada. 6% 6% United Kingdom, 3% in Australia, 1% in Germany, and then the rest of them are around 1%. I'm going to go ahead and read those countries as well. Ireland, South Africa, India, Kenya, France, Greece, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Norway, Romania, Philippines, Poland, Mexico, Botswana, Sweden, Ukraine, Iceland, Belgium, Italy, New Zealand, Brazil, Guam, Colombia, U.S. Virgin Islands, Lithuania, Iran, Croatia, Slovakia, Latvia, Maritus, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, Singapore, Guatemala, Hong Kong, Costa Rica, and as of last night, Indonesia has joined the crew. So thank you guys very much. I also want to let you guys know that we do have a Facebook uh, group called Sober Shares Podcast. So just jump on Facebook and request entrance into that group, and I'll approve you to come in there. And you can see it's a little community that we're trying to build on Facebook. And I post pictures of what the studio looks like. I post little uh, memes and graphics that I build out for each guest. And there's a lot of community starting to build within the Facebook community. So hopefully you guys will dig that. And I want to get back to our guest now and ask... Casey to tell us about his AA sponsor and how he got one and how it has helped him. Cool. Uh, first, let me just say how amazing all those people have been listening. And I love those comments too. Uh, <clears throat> you're doing something special and I, I, I'm super grateful to get to be a part of it. So I, I appreciate it. I hope that all those people that are, you know, new and on the journey continue to comment. I want to hear how things continue to go for those guys. Should we take a break and do something real quick that I have not done yet in the first 20 episodes? And that is mention another podcast, uh, which is I'm a huge fan of. It's called Sober Speak. And you know much more about it than I do because you were the 20th guest on Sober Speak, and now you're the 20th guest on Sober Shares, <laughs> no. and you've been on there twice. So maybe, could you maybe talk a little bit about that that other podcast? I would, I would love to. I, guy at my home group, John M., he, um, much like you, uh, felt something God 
you know, divine intervention, calling him to do something. And, and it was to take his talents and do a podcast, very similar Q&A type podcast. He does some speaker meetings too. He has a looser format and does some more topics. So it's, uh, it's different and similar, uh, but so, so great. I will, I'll say two things about it real quick. One is when I was a kid first coming into the program, speaker tapes were such a big deal. Physical tape, someone would hand it to you. You'd listen to it in your car. It would be bad audio quality, but it would be just such a cool message. And there were some tapes that I just listened to and listened to and listened to. And the more I got sober, I got like Joe and Charlie's big book study on tape. And it like that changed my life. And so in this kind of low tech era, when I first got sober, having these tapes was huge. Now we're in this high-tech era where you can go onto a lot of different platforms and listen to a lot of different things. And this is like a next level. What you and John and some others are doing is kind of a, a next level view into recovery for people. Uh, and so I am incredibly grateful to both of you guys. So that's one. Please go out and seek others too, because I found some other things that, that have been really good. Good on you for mentioning John's podcast. And John does the same thing. He mentions a lot of other people's podcasts and ways that you can get uh, sober content. I was listening to a lady. I believe her name is Emily. She was on John's podcast. I don't want to butcher this, like five episodes ago, six episodes ago. And she got sober starting to listen to John's podcast, just like a few of the people that mentioned comments right there. Wow. And John got to know Emily, and Emily came on. She has like two, uh, maybe three years of sobriety now. And she came on and was a guest. Well, she flew in from St. Louis to come to Sober Speak uh, live that he just did this last week. That was the lady who stood up, really? kind of got sober okay. listening to his podcast and then going to going to meetings and so i told john i was like dude if nothing else good comes out of this podcast emily's story is like worth all the time and the effort that you've put into it and so many other people have gotten that same kind of help and so uh what you're doing is really special I, i'm you know we're sitting at your house taking up your time and your space and, and the service work that you're doing you know, it talks about in the back of the book uh in the back of the 12 and 12 uh in step 12 the different opportunities that we have for service work and 12-step work we think a 12-step work is going through the steps of somebody that's certainly 12-step work making coffee at the meeting actively listening at a meeting taking a meeting into a treatment center going for the cleanup day at your home group going to group conscience making a podcast and taking the time out of your day to find good guests it's not just us sitting across the table it's all the prep that you do it's all the editing that you do it's getting the word out it's getting the facebook and updating your website it's a lot of work man and, yeah. and so and it took uh, me two years to get here and dude it's so meaning <laughs> what you've done and what john's and i told you you know you and i met whatever it was three weeks ago yeah. uh, officially and i have just sucked up your podcast like a sponge listen to so many people i'm yeah. sure that i'll listen to them more than once yeah and, and so uh really a special deal that both you and john are doing so kudos to you guys and, and grateful for the work that you're doing. I appreciate you too. The way I got you on the podcast is three weeks ago when we met, I uh, was sitting next to Nancy C who is guest number two on Sober Shares and she, you were talking and she leaned over to me and whispered pretty loudly where a lot of people kind of heard it. She's like, he would be an excellent guest on your podcast. You should get him on your show. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, I'll introduce you to him after the meeting. Yes. And so I ran over to you and talked to you, but I want to talk about Sober Speak real quick. Yeah. I am a fan of yep. that show so if you like this show i would encourage you to go out and awesome. seek out sober speak and it's awesome. hosted by a guy named john m out of frisco texas yep. 
Uh, we have not formally met. We have spoken on the phone. We have not formally met. I did see him for the first time ever a couple of nights ago in person. I went to his Sober Speak Live event mm-hmm. with uh, Reno John, and yep. uh, it was a really cool event. But mm-hmm. I wanted to tell John, if he is listening, that I am a fan of him and his awesome. show. We have had some phone calls, and he has helped me with advice. Like I said, it took me two and a half years to birth this thing and get to the yep. point where we were live four months ago. So he has answered questions Ugh. for me on the back end, more technical stuff, yep. and, and then also helped me with uh, you know more of a macro view of how do you handle, how would you handle this kind of situation, mm-hmm. John? What would you do about this? Should I do this? Should I do that? And he really has given me some solid advice as someone who has entered this uh, podcast realm before I have. So I got much love and respect for John M. I appreciate you shouting him out. Yeah, for sure. And I hopefully we'll meet him one day Yeah, where I can walk up to him and say, Hey, I'm Michael. And he'll be like, Oh, that's what you look like. That should have happened two nights ago. That's my bad. But I feel like he was rushing around and then the, I don't know. It all happened. He does not look like, he does not look like what I thought he was going to look like. What's funny is that he, you would you definitely think something different about him than when you met him yes. face to face. Uh, totally uh, different. And, and he is he is just a gem of a person. Is so much fun. A guy I had a huge amount of respect for before the podcast, and now seeing all the work that he's put into it and how he's dedicated himself to it, uh, even even more respect. He, he's an awesome dude. The way I've consumed his show has been very beneficial to me in my sobriety. For example, like if I'm going on a plane trip where I'm going to be in an airport by myself for three hours and then I'm going to be out of town in a hotel or walking around a Walmart, I just fire up his show and I just listen to it and I'm being spoon fed recovery and hope and inspiration. So, you know, I think, I think we lean on God for everything. Right. But I think God, when you get in the program and you're working the steps, I think that's where we get the place we get to, but there he's given us so many tools and and man, when my head's not right about something, nothing better than to get on my knees and pray and then put something in my ears about somebody recovering something spiritual. And so the, you and John providing that stuff is exactly what you said. John describes his as like the meeting between meetings. And I love that idea, right? It's not, I'm not replacing it, yeah. but man, I'm, I'm just getting fed a little bit more than I might have if I, if I didn't have it. Yeah. It's like augmenting your recovery. Yeah, that's right. A lot of times when I think about people and I'll never, I don't think I'll ever meet 98% of the people that listen to this show. Sure. I really don't think I'll ever meet 98% of you out there that are listening, but I do love you and care about you. And I, and I, I try to envision what it looks like in the real world when people out there listening to us talk. And I, I think yeah. about like guys that are in recovery that maybe work in a warehouse that are allowed to listen right. to AirPods and they've yes. got an eight hour overnight shift or a yes. 12 hour overnight shift or truck drivers mm-hmm. or just different people all around the country. Uh, maybe people in Boston or New York or New Hampshire that are uh, commuting into work in the morning through Connecticut on a train uh, into New York city. And then they're commuting backwards uh, yeah. back to Connecticut, New Hampshire and wherever they're from. And they're just riding on these buses and these trains and, Maybe people on cruise ships listening to us and yes. just all kinds of places. It's just, it's so weird to think yeah. about. It's exciting. Really cool. All right. So let's fire up that talk about the yep. AA sponsorship. Can you tell us about how you got a sponsor and how it has helped you? Yeah. The way I got a sponsor is not recommended uh, <laughs> because I had been going to meetings for a couple of weeks and was obviously struggling. I will tell you that for me, I sat in meetings for a, quite a bit of time in early sobriety, holding onto my chair <laughs> and thinking about drinking. And this guy came up to me couple weeks, a month into going to meetings and being sober, not drinking before. And he said, do you have a sponsor? I said, no. And he said, I'm your sponsor. And so that guy sponsored me through the first three steps. Awesome guy. Uh, I will say, too, that if you're new, man, I, I just love uh, 
uh, I love after being here for a little while and having a sponsor, being able to go up to new people in the meeting and talking to them, asking them how it's going, asking them if they have a sponsor, asking them if they have a book, um, giving them my number and telling I'm willing to help them either work the steps with them or to find them someone to work steps with. Um, uh, I'm a big believer in that because those people, I've heard you say on this podcast over and over, uh, that they, you know, people in AA love you before you can love yourself. I, I will tell you that those people at the unity group took a very genuine interest in me when I was new. And that interest also included what I was doing about getting my step work done. Um, and if you've been around for a little while, man, I really encourage you to go out and, um, and try to be that interested in folks um, who are new to the program. I agree. That's yeah. beautiful. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time oh, during sobriety and how did oh, that work out for you? Well, how did that work out for me? That's an excellent yeah. question. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's say that I've done both. Uh, <laughs> me too. And uh, much prefer having <laughs> an outside third party sponsor me yeah. um, because uh, when I'm sponsoring myself, Man, I give myself a lot of grace and, and give myself a lot of leeway and a lot of permission. A lot of green you know? lights. And it, it's funny because I, I never thought, you. and also too, just so everyone knows, you can have a sponsor that you call sponsor and still be sponsoring yourself, right? <laughs> You're it doesn't the first mean that you don't have a sponsor, but you can still sponsor yourself. It's when you need to make a big decision and you don't call them or you have the resentment going on in your head, but you don't <laughs> think you need to call them, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I have had the other way where I've also sponsored myself. I, I'll, I'll give you a, just a little sponsorship history on me because I've moved twice in sobriety. And so when I moved, I changed sponsors. So this guy sponsored me through the first three steps. Uh, I don't, uh, he, he wasn't exactly what I needed and we kind of agreed to go separate ways. And so I got another sponsor who I worked the rest of the steps with. He was amazing, younger guy. Uh, after being, I said how much I love young people in sobriety. After being, <clears throat> going for my first couple of years and really being involved with young people, I thought that I needed to add to that arsenal some older folks in the meeting that I was closer with. And so I started going to Northland Group um, in Austin, which is traditionally, you know, longer time sobriety, a lot of old timers there, and got a, a gentleman named Ed who sponsored me for, gosh, three or four years. Then I moved from Austin to Florida. Um, and, and when I did that, uh, kept talking to Ed for a while and then found a new sponsor in, in Florida. Great guy. Uh, sponsored me the entire time I was there, sponsored me some when I moved here. He actually passed away right after I moved uh, to Texas. And so um, then I got a couple of other sponsors uh, while I was here. Nothing really worked out the way I wanted to. I finally found a sponsor that I really liked at Georgetown. He moved and then ended up passing away too. Uh, and so now I have, I've had, I guess I've had the same sponsor for about three or four years. His name is Martin. You've probably seen him before. At yeah, he's Group. awesome. Great guy. And so... In some of those pockets of either having a sponsor and not talking to them, sponsoring myself, <laughs> or giving myself a good amount of time in between sponsors, which was a terrible idea, mm -hmm. um, I will say that as I got more sober, I thought, man, I really need to have this spiritual giant who is very well respected in the community mm -hmm. and I'm important. And so I need to have this really important person <laughs> sponsor me, which is obviously not true um, on either account. And what I really needed to do was reach out to, 
you know, my higher power and say, who is this supposed to be sponsoring me? Help me be open to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I got my current sponsor because mm -hmm. um, it's not who I would have chosen. Um, and it became very obvious to me that that's who needed to sponsor me once that seed got planted in my mind. And so <clears throat> now when I am in the middle of recovery, not only do I have a sponsor that I call sponsor Martine, uh, but I also have another dozen guys that sponsor me, right? Mm -hmm. I have a guy who's very involved in general service. You know, and I think of that guy as my service sponsor and I have a service question. I talk to him. I have a guy who is not, doesn't have as much time in the program as I do, but he's got kids that are in their twenties and he's been married for 30 years, right? I've got kids in their teens and I've been married for 20 years. He can be my marriage sponsor, right? I, I can call him and ask him, Hey, what's coming up next, right? I also have a lot of guys in the program who have different experiences than me. And so I have a sponsee that's going through a divorce. I've never gone through a divorce before. So I insist that he finds somebody who has stayed sober and had a healthy divorce and recovery, right? I, a guy comes up and wants me to sponsor him. And he says, hey, man, I am just getting out of federal penitentiary. I spent nine years there. I was sober the entire time I was in the pen. I went to meetings. I've had sponsors. I would love for you to be my sponsor. And I said, I will absolutely be your sponsor. You need to find somebody who got sober in jail and is sober today. I know somebody, right? And so, um, while I have a sponsor that I call and work steps with, and I have full transparency with, there's a lot of people that I go to and view in kind of that mentor sponsorship type of role. There's a lot of people that I try to get consensus from about things that are going on in my life. What does a good husband look like? What does a good dad look like? What does a good employee look like? What does a good friend look like? What does a good son look like? You know, there's a lot of people that have that experience that I could benefit from. That's a beautiful, beautiful answer. I think it's a good idea to have a wide support network like that. Um, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. You've been sober a long time. Is it important for you? And there's no rules within the sponsorship community. Mm -hmm. There's some guidelines, but there's no yep. rules. Is there? And one of the standard rules is, you know, unspoken really more than anything else is that they have more time than you. So yep. is that a difficult process for you with massive long-term sobriety to find something that's got more time than you to sponsor you? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm not a believer in that. Um, I understand why people want that. And I definitely understand why people that are new that want that. Me with 31 years of sobriety, can, could I not be sponsored by somebody with 29 years of sobriety? I don't think that's very true. I think I could definitely be sponsored with somebody with less sobriety than me. I have sponsored guys with more sobriety than me before. Um, and, and so uh, I don't have a big hang-up about that. I do believe boys get boys and girls get girls. Uh, that was something I was told from the very beginning. Uh, and I will also say that I've been the service sponsor of two females uh, in, in sobriety within the last five years. Um, and, and so I, I don't have a huge hang up on that. I think for me, uh, there's a lot that goes into that because I remember, here's a good story for you. I was about two years sober and I was leading a big book study, uh, a young people's big book study. And a girl came up to me after the big book study, a very pretty girl, Michael. <laughs> When she Very asked you to sponsor girl. her. And she said, I need a sponsor. Would you be my sponsor? Oh, my God. 
And I called, I called my sponsor, like immediately called my sponsor. It's like, Hey dude, uh, this girl asked me to be your sponsor and, uh, I think I probably should because yeah, trying to help you. Yeah. Trying to be helpful. And he, I, I'll, I'll use less colorful language. And he said, are you trying to sleep with this girl or would you like to sleep with this girl? And I said, I would. And he said, then you should definitely not sponsor her uh. and it's okay to sleep with her. You know I mean? It's okay to pursue <laughs> that if that's what you want to do, right? Like that's not out of bounds, but you can't yeah. sponsor her. Yeah. And so uh, I, I guess maybe that's the differentiating point for me. There's a some point in time in my recovery. I know this is not true for everybody. There's some point in time in my recovery where I started to feel like the women in the program were my sisters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I felt that way pretty strongly for quite some time now. Um, and, and I think part of that was getting married and loving my wife and that being something that didn't dominate my thinking as much. And then the second was just watching so many people, so many females come in in recovery and, and watching the trials and tribulations and knowing the complications that, you know, uh, an intimate relationship can have in early sobriety and those kinds of things. Uh, I think somehow that, that flip just switched in my brain uh, that changed the way I viewed women in sobriety. So today, if somebody came up and wanted me to be a service sponsor, I could do that or wanted to talk with me about something. I'd be happy to do that. I think if I'm going to work steps with somebody, probably boys get boys and girls get girls. Good advice for me still today. I agree with you. I, um, came into this podcast and just to say this real quick before I say that this podcast has changed my view and ideas and thoughts on a lot of things. And when I started this show, I came in with, with the pretty hard line stance that boys should be sponsored by boys and girls mm -hmm. should be sponsored by girls. And I fully agreed with myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. hard, to, hard to disagree. Right. Yeah, you, so you I came up with that. Yeah. So I had that opinion and I was like, a boy, Mike, you're right. Blah, blah, blah. So long story short, I still believe that in 90 a high percentage, 90 yep. plus percent of the cases, but I have backed off a little bit and thought to myself through discussions with people on the show. You can go back and listen to prior episodes. Mm -hmm. We've discussed it right here at these table on these microphones and it has softened my stance on sometimes it's okay for boys to yep. sponsor girls and girls, sponsor well, boys, but probably not most of the time. And then the last thing I want to say yep. on that subject, and then you can talk is yep. that, and this goes back, this is more ammunition or proof for my original thought that boys should sponsor boys and girls should sponsor girls is yep. I heard this in a meeting. This is not something I came up with. So please yep. don't think I'm super smart yep. on this deal. This is something I heard. I heard a female say to me, she said, Hey Mike, um, I heard your podcast the other day and you were talking about boys sponsoring boys and girls sponsoring girls and the whole deal. And she's like, I agree with girls staying with girls and guys staying with guys. And she goes, here's one of the reasons why. And I said, okay, what? And she said, because if you've got a female, a new female now, Clocks and and she has a male sponsor, how is that male sponsor going to teach her or show her how to become a dignified, classy, sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous? He can't because he's a dude. He can't. He's going to have a really hard time teaching her, showing her, leading her into the experience of how to be a classy, refined, beautiful woman in Alcoholics Anonymous based on his experience. And I was like, okay. So that's just something I wanted to point out. Yeah. I don't have a, all my opinions are not set in stone anymore. Yep. And I'm flexible because there's so many people that travel so many different, um, paths, you know, with their, uh, you know, binary, non-binary. I'm a boy, I'm a girl. Yeah. There's so many different people doing so many different things. Yep. Who, who am I to say, Oh, well put my hands on my hips and be like, Oh, well this is the rule and this is how it should be this, that, and the other. So I have softened my stance and I have, um, 
become bigger hearted. Last thing I'll say is I have had three girls ask me to sponsor them. Yep. And I told them all no quickly. Yep. And they were all three pretty. Yeah. So maybe if that happens to me again, it hasn't happened in a long time, yeah. but if it happens again, maybe instead of saying no so quickly, maybe I should talk to them a little bit more about it yeah. and say, well, why? Find out. Yeah. Like talk to them a little bit. Yep. Don't do I just, you know, I think that I'll probably do that if a girl ever asks me to sponsor again. Yeah. Instead of saying, no, ask, ask, ask Stacy yep. or ask Heather. You know, I'm a dude. I'm not going to sponsor you. Maybe I yep. should be like, not be like that and be like, okay, well, let's talk for a minute. What, what, are you, what are you thinking? What do you need from me? What do you want? What's going on with you? Yeah. And if I diagnose that I can't help her with any of that, then I'll send her to yeah. her. Because there's so many strong women in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not only strong, but super strong. Like yeah. spiritual oh gangsters. Gosh. I know some spiritual female get me gangsters started. like 10 times more spiritual uh, than I am. Uh, and I tell them to their face. I tell these right. females to their face and, and I mean it as a compliment. I don't know how they take it, but I walk up to them and I say, listen, if I was a girl, I would ask you to sponsor yeah. me. I want you to, I, if I was a girl, I'd want you to yep. be my sponsor. And I'm trying to compliment them and hopefully they take it that way. Yeah. Cause these girls are spiritual gangsters yeah. man, way more than me. And I want what they have. I'm like, Oh my God, you have a peace beyond my comprehension, a yep. stillness, a, a vision and a clarity and a loving heart. And I would like to aspire in all those categories. And you have more than I have in every single one of those areas. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I love this topic. I think it's interesting to talk about at the end of the day, there is but one ultimate authority, right? A loving God that may express himself in our group conscience. Uh, our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And so we don't dictate whether you boys get boys and girls get girls. As a matter of fact, if you read the first 164 pages, the word sponsor does not appear. Look at the 12 and 12, you'll learn more about it. We've got pamphlets about it, right? And it's obviously an important part of what we do. Um, I do think that there, and I don't want to, you know, I think... God is the one who decides. I think there are women who come in and feel very uncomfortable with other women uh, for whatever reason that baggage exists. And I've seen older gentlemen sponsor younger women and vice versa, younger men sponsored by you know older women. Um, but I do, to your point, at some point in time, you've got to start to develop that relationship with women and you've got to move, move on to that and, and men the same way. But there is a spectrum of gender that's going on right now that did not happen when you and I, or at least we didn't see it. Everything was around, we just didn't know about it. Yeah, it, it was probably was around, we didn't know about it. And so that whole thing is going to look a lot different over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, I guarantee you. And so uh, I, I think for me, just like what you said, if, if that happened, I'd want to talk through with somebody. I'd want to talk to my sponsor about it. And I'd want to, what's the most helpful thing I can do for this person? You know, I, I think that's where, where I've got to be able to come from uh, with that. And I, I, but I'm the same way. Any, any woman who's new in a meeting and maybe someone's not coming up and talk to her, I might go up and talk to her and, and encourage her to, here's a woman, here's a woman, here's a woman. I know people I can, whose number I can give you to. I'm always going to try to direct a new lady towards a, a, another lady in the program, and, and I'm going to try to direct a guy towards another guy in the program. That was what I came up on. Isn't it interesting how, like, when we get newcomers in our meetings and whatnot, we pass around in Dallas, we pass around these things called new, newcomers packets, mm -hmm. and, and we hand them around the room, and everybody gets to touch the newcomers packet, and they have a pencil associated with the newcomers packet. And on the back of the newcomers packet, there's lines for names and phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me how, and I understand why I think, why uh, the girls only sign the girls and the guys yeah. only sign the yeah. guys. Probably, probably good policy. Probably yeah. good policy. <laughs> yeah, keep it out of the ditch. Um, has the desire to drink or to use drugs again returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? It's a great question. Not in the way that it has for other people that I've heard 
not even so much to where it was like, hey, I was thinking about drinking today because I don't think that's happened. You know, I, I think there are times like a fleeting thought where you see the, you know, you see the person on the beach with the cold beer and the, you know, the bead of, you know, sweat rolling down the side of that bottle and you think, man, one beer would be good. But then I, I usually I think about like when things are going bad, it's like a bottle of Wild Turkey 101 in the closet, you know, is really what I'm thinking about. Like, give me oblivion. Yeah. There was one that happened, and you know, I, I never had a legal drink, so it's not like I walk into a bar and think, oh, I should be drinking here. I never drank in a bar. Mm -hmm. So bars bore me. I don't, you know, unless you're playing pool or, you know, uh, uh, throwing darts or doing, you know, trivia night or something else, I don't want to go to a bar with you, but it doesn't make me want to drink. I will say I was in Vegas, I don't know, four or five years ago. My wife is not one of us, in, insanely normal, and uh, as, it, as it relates to alcohol and drugs. Insanely not normal in other places. We could talk about that if we want to take her inventory later. Uh, maybe she won't listen to this podcast, but normal when it comes to drinking and drugs. And she said, you know what we should do? We should go to a dispensary. I really want to see what a dispensary looks like. And I was like, sure, I'll take you to the dispensary. And then about 15 minutes that thought sat with me, and I was like, no, I don't think I am going to take you to a dispensary. Like, I just feel like that's something that I don't need. So these are all personal decisions, right? But uh, I, I, there's an element there in me that uh that would think that drinking or doing drugs might be a good good idea sometime uh but i, I haven't had to hold on to my seat for a long time in alcoholics and I'm, I'm very grateful for that because i know the the idea of drink has come back pretty strongly for some yeah definitely yeah have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober and how have you coped with it oh that's a great question i i feel like my family tree and my my family that I've married into is kind of riddled with depression and anxiety in different forms. You know, um, uh, I don't know that I have, or at least that depression and anxiety has been one that I have not had to treat clinically. You know, um, the program has done the work for me. Um, I don't want to twist off into that discussion, but I do know that there are people in recovery that need more with their depression and anxiety than just 12 steps, right? I've, I've seen people who need more in recovery and I'm a huge proponent and fan of that uh, done properly. You know, yeah. uh, uh, I, I have not had that extent. Now I have allowed myself to get very isolated and I have built a brick wall between me and our creator, right? O on several occasions. I have never taken a huge step back away from God, but I have taken a thousand little steps away from God. And then I'm all of a sudden got my binoculars out looking, where is God? Oh my gosh, he, he left, you know, but the truth is I, I stepped away from him. So I have allowed myself to feel very lonely and isolated in recovery. Um, and once I realized that happened, it was very easy to get back involved. Like um, what? By doing what? So the... Getting back involved or walking away? Uh, let's go hit the walking away part okay. real quick first. What was that like? Decreasing your meeting frequency or yep. what? Yep. So, um, uh, when both times I moved, both times I moved, I went to meetings and was like, "Ugh, meetings here suck." <laughs> you know, and they're not doing it right. Yep. And, and, and so, kind of got away from it there. And once you get away from the daily meetings, all of a sudden you're not sponsoring people. All of a sudden you don't have a service commitment. All of a sudden the morning meditation doesn't seem as important. All of a sudden work seems important. This girl you're dating seems important. Um, and those things are important. I'm not saying they're not, but they 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 supplant the healthy things I'm doing. You know, the healthy things I do make work and girlfriends and now wife and kids and all that stuff 
stuff, great. And when I'm not taking care of myself in a spiritual way, not taking care of my recovery, those things all suffer. And so uh, I have participated in what I would consider some pretty bad behavior in recovery um, because I let myself get isolated, feel alone, um, isolated myself from God. And the way I got back involved was um, someone in someone in the program pulled me back in. You know, um, we, we, we talk about our primary purpose, right? To carry the message of the alcoholic who's still suffering. Well, the alcoholic who's still suffering is not always the guy that's in his first month of recovery, right? The guy who's still suffering could be the guy who just moved here from Florida who has, you know, 18 years of sobriety, um, but doesn't feel like he fits in, uh, doesn't see where his place is, isn't motivated by the meetings. You know, you get this home group and you get so excited about going to meetings. I love going to meetings today. There was nothing more fun than me than coming to Preston group, whatever it was, four Mondays ago and seeing all those people that I haven't seen in a long time. So Frisco group's my home group now. And, and so I love it, right? But when you walk into that meeting in the new town that you're in and you don't know anybody and you don't love it, um, you know, you got it. So what happened in Dallas was I met Gary, who's been on your podcast, who is one of my absolute heroes and I love. Don't please don't let him. You can edit that out, maybe. So he I'm gonna leave it in. He loves later. that. Dang he told it. me he told me to leave anything good in that people say and edit out the bad stuff. So, so Gary invited me to his house for uh, cards, and so we played cards. A bunch of people in recovery. I met this younger person in recovery. This younger person said, "Hey, you got sober young. Could you come speak at this young people's meeting?" And so I went and spoke at that young people's meeting when I wasn't feeling very spiritual, wasn't feeling very connected. And at the end of that meeting, a guy came up to me and said, "Hey, man, I want your number. I need a sponsor." Mm -hmm. Right. And so just from that one person reaching out to me, you know, and I've told them like, I don't know where I'd be today if that hadn't happened. Right. That's that's God in skin showing up. Um, uh, for me to come to that, to get a sponsor, to feel more connected, to now find a meeting that I really like coming to. And lo and behold, people in Dallas are doing it right. And this is a great place to do recovery. And so uh, that, that's, that's kind of how I got out of it was somebody asked me to do something and I said yes, uh, and it pulled me back in. That's exactly what our last guest, Jennifer HK, talked mm -hmm. about. Um, she was, I think, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to guess the number because I don't want to get it wrong, but she had well into the high 20s yep. years of sobriety and she was drifting a little bit and yep. struggling a little bit uh, with everything with god with her sobriety with her life and just not feeling it and uh, had failed with several sponsees in a row and then she had a bunch of sponsees say that they wanted to start a step study mm -hmm. and she didn't want to do it yep <laughs> but, yep but she stepped up and did it and it saved her life because yep. they pulled her back in it's yep. like the mob man she tried to That's drift right. out they, they just in. pull them back in and so these sponsees <laughs> they made her start this step study and they pulled her back in and they they prayed before they started and yeah. It was a it was a good deal. It was a, it was beautiful. And I, after she told that story, I was like, Jennifer, I love listening to your stories because all your stories end the same. They all end with God loves you. He's going to take care of you no matter what, yep. and He's got you yep. no matter what happens in your life. Because all her stories would arc out that way. Right. And so it was beautiful. And it's the same thing with you. You got pulled back in. So Gary was the one that that kind of pulled you back in through the poker game card. Yeah, game? I mean, it, it was you know I had fun going and play cards at Gary's house with a bunch of sober folks. He you said know, it if was that, fun. If that had been a meeting, that would have been my home group. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, and so um, it, it's little things like that. You know, you don't know what 
hosting a podcast and inviting somebody to come and speak at it is, or to share that podcast with somebody who then resonates. You know, uh, there are so many ripples that happen, you know, from, uh, from Bill going over to Bob, you know, yeah. it's funny because I think about today, you know, we think about this, we think about service work and you're like, oh, there's a guy in the meeting who got my number, but he never called me, right? But I think about Bill and Bob, our co-founders, and Bill was out of town and he, the bar was on one side, the church rectory was on the other. He goes over and starts making phone calls in the phone booth, telling people who he was and what he needed. He's actively seeking out somebody that he could help. And then he proactively goes over, apparently, your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, the story that I was told was that he went over to Henrietta's house uh, and Bob wasn't there, so he had to go back to the hotel and then come back a second time, right? He's really pursuing these people. So today when somebody comes up and is new in the meeting and, um, and they want my number, I said, yeah, I'll give you my number. You give me your number. Because I want to call you, uh, and I want to pursue you in the same way that when I first came into the program, those guys pursued me at the Unity Group, you know? Wow, that's beautiful. I, I want to talk about uh, some experience that I had uh, coming in uh, to sobriety, and my experience was that I got sober. Everybody that loved me, cared me, that was related to me, knew about the fact that I was sober. So somewhere around 10 years sober, um, all my friends and family started to know that I was the sober guy. Mm -hmm. And if they had problems in their extended social networks, yep. they would all be like, well, talk to Mike. He's been sober yeah. 10 years. Call Mike. He's been sober 10 years. So what would happen is I kind of had a hard line stance. I would accept all the phone calls from their relatives and yep. stuff. And let's just make up a scenario. Some random lady would call me who was a friend of my mom's. Yep. And let's make up a name, Heather. So Heather would yep. call me like, yo, my kid's a drunk. Uh, you know, can you help me get him sober? I heard you've been sober 10 years. I'm right. friends with your mom, blah, blah, blah. And so what I used to do with the hard line stance is I'll be like, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to him. Give him my phone number, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to call him. He's yep. got to call me. Yep. He has to want it. He has to show me that yeah. he wants it. Yeah. And then now it's not like that. Now I don't think that at all because the story that you just told, yeah. as well as a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts are not able to get out of their bitter morass yep. of their daily existence enough to call me because they don't even know what they're calling me for. Their yep. mother wants them to call me. Yep. They don't want to call me. Their mother wants them to call me. But if I can reach out to them through that channel, I might be able to affect uh, some kind of positive change. And if I can affect a positive change in their life, I can maybe plant a seed that will bloom later. And if that doesn't happen, then we can go with option C, was, which would be I get to remain sober. I get to keep going that way. But I don't mm. I don't play it like that anymore. I don't, I don't, but I used to say that all the time when yep. 10 years sober. I'd be like, oh, they got to want it. They got to nice. call me first. Yep. I, you know, in the book, uh, I think there's, there's a, a point where we stop, right? I think we have to, um, I think we have to make ourselves open to heaven, to pursuing people. It also says on page 96, we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you, right? So I, I do think there's a line. I, I will tell you that when somebody calls me and says, hey, I've got this son, I've got this. Uh, nephew, uh, my husband, you know, whatever it is that's calling me. Uh, I'll absolutely give them my number. Uh, I will absolutely say I'd love to call and, and talk to them myself. I also say, have you heard of Al-Anon? Because that could be something that might be beneficial for you. You know what kind too. of reaction I get to that? What? 98% rejection. Yeah. Which is, they, which is okay. You know, but, but I always want to tell people that because it's like, 
you're feeling bad about what's happening right now. And man, wouldn't it be great if, yeah. and I understand, boy, you want to talk about somebody who's lived in, wouldn't it be great if I spent <laughs> a lot of time before getting sober and a lot of time after getting sober, I'll be happy when, yeah. right? And so I'm happy to help this person, right? And talk to them. But if you want, if you want to be happy, let me introduce you to the um, to the miraculous program of Al-Anon. Um, Do you have any experience with Al-Anon? Do you go to meetings and stuff? Have you checked it out? So I've definitely checked it out. You know, it's funny. My first sponsors, I asked him about Al-Anon because a lot of people went to Al-Anon when I first got sober. And he said, yeah, he said, let's work on the AA stuff before we go to the Al-Anon stuff. Like that's like kind of a 102 recovery thing. And I think he was right about that for me. I've gone to some in support of other folks. Uh, and I've certainly studied Al-Anon. And my, uh, a lot of people in my very close network or like double winner types. And so I, I get a lot of that from them. Um, so I, I have not spent a lot of time in Al-Anon, but I'm a huge fan. I love Al-Anon speakers. Uh, I love the principles put forward in Al-Anon because those people who are drinking and drugging and are the tornado going through people's lives, you know, there's a lot of people that could benefit from that while this tornado is going on. Um, because uh, uh, it's very easy to say, boy, if this guy would just get it together or this gal would get it together, I'd be fine. Uh, and Al-Anon helps you through that, yeah. <laughs> that kind of discussion. I've been to, uh, I've been a guest. I think I've been to five Al-Anon meetings. Yep. The, the real ones where you have a discussion yep. and there's a topic and a chairperson. So I've been to about five of those and yep. I've been to, I've heard in person and on tape maybe like 10 Al-Anon yep. speakers and I've yep. enjoyed all of them. Yep. Um, my commitment in 2022, I don't necessarily make... Um, New Year's Eve day yeah. resolutions. Yeah. I don't really do that, but I would like to, in 2022, uh, enlarge my um, pool of experience with um, finding out more about Al-Anon. And I will report back to you on a later episode. Yeah, I love that. What I find or don't yeah. find. But I want to get smarter when it comes to that stuff. And I'd like to have some people on here that um, maybe are specifically Al-Anon-related um, yeah. uh, people. I've had a lot of people that you refer to as double winners, yep. which means they're alcoholics and um, Al-Anon um, members. Yep. And they spoke to Al-Anon. But yeah. I'd like to have some, some more information there. Awesome. So the next question is massive. It's huge. It's where are you with God today? Oh, wow. Hopefully I'm right in the middle of it, right next to it. And God's everything, right? Uh, um, I feel like I, a couple of things have become apparent to me. Uh, and I know I, I like to read, I highlighted a couple of things in my book that I want to share on this topic. I think, I think there's a couple of pieces in the book that really resonate with me and have resonated with me more recently um, because, you know, we talk about it over and over again in the book. There's a ton of cautionary tales about what happens if we don't, you know, fail to enlarge our spiritual experience, right? And so I, I think that there are some parts of the book that speak to that really well. Um, one of them is uh, a part we read very often in meetings, um, but we don't read the entire paragraph. Uh, it's on page 85. 
I'm going to read both parts of this paragraph. It's right in the middle of page 85. It says, It's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Now, that's the part that gets read in the meetings all the time. Second part does not get read very often. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. That is an incredibly aspirational statement, right? When I do my 11, 10 11 at the end of the night and say, were you thinking about yourself most of the day? Were you thinking about others? Guess what, Michael? Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about myself most of the day. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that I bookend my day with committing myself to God in the morning and his will for me and try to be open to whatever that is and thanking him at night. Um, and those are the bookends to a day where I hope I'm saying to myself many times throughout the day, thy will not mine be done. That is where I need to be with God, right? I need to let myself be open to whatever it is he would have me be. I need to try to be a channel as best I can and get out of the way as best I can. Here's the other thing that, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. No, the two words that jumped yep. out to me in that reading yep. were uh, every day and constantly. Yeah. Those are, yeah, those are, those are not suggestions, bro. Every day and constantly. I I highlighted the words must, all, must, constantly. (laughs) Those are not things that are lightly taken, right? That's not the suggestions of recovery. Those are like. I was not doing that when I was drinking. No, definitely not. The other part that I've really latched onto um, in my later years of sobriety is on page 46. Um, it says we found it's in the middle paragraph it says we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves we commenced to get results here's the part that's really resonated with me even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is god i spent a lot of time thinking about whether religion was right You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about what my God looks like, right? But at the end of the day, God is completely um, incomprehensible to me. I am having a human experience. And so today for me, you know, my sponsor, when I first got sober and I didn't believe in God, he said, there's only two things you need to know about God. And this is not out of our literature, but I believe it with my whole heart today. There is a God and it is not you. You don't need to define it any more than that, right? And so um, when I was a little kid at Vespers, the sun's going down and it's quiet and you can hear a, a, you know the night birds start to get into motion and crickets and whatever else, like that is God, right? I mean, it's everything, right? And I feel it right there. You know, to me, thy will not mine be done is the same thing as me saying, I submit myself to the universe, right? That's, that's the equivalent of that. If God is everything, then it's the universe, right? It's everything known and unknown. And so for me, I don't try to spend a lot of time debating people about God, (laughs) what their concept of God is. Are these people right? Are these people right? I have no idea, 
right? But what I do know is that I wake up every day and say, what would you have me be? What would you have me think? What would you have me do? Who can I help today, right? Those are the things that I ask. And so if I'm leaving myself open to that, if there's some kind of truth that I should know or something that I should be comprehending, I'm pretty certain that God's going to allow that to happen in my life. If it's something I need, he's going to be there with it for me because I am constantly asking for it. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. I've had multiple sponsors over the last 21 years, and they have all taught me something different. They all highlight a different area of the program. Yep. And the guy I'm working with right now is out of the pressure group. His name's Scott D., and he's yep. my favorite. Scott, he's the best. Yeah, he's my favorite. And he always talks to me um, about page 53, mm-hmm. and he always talks about this paragraph. Ooh, he let quotes me find it. it real quick. Yeah, I want to read it with you. It's on page 53 in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the uh, second. It's right in the middle, middle, middle of the page. Okay. He always talks to me about this, and he always quotes us in meetings. And this is kind of what I think his message to me is, or at least it feels like. It says, when we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could know, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? He hits me with that all the time. And he hits uh, everybody that comes to the meetings that he goes to with that all the time. And it just really boils it down for me and makes it real simple. And I have a choice. I have a daily choice to make on a daily basis. And I choose to believe almost all the time that he is. And that just allows me to remain calm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, allows me to stay comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. Because if there is a God and he's not me, that it takes a lot of pressure off of me. Well, and Bill makes a pretty big leap. The author of the big book makes a pretty big leap from page 47 where He says, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe, right? And then six pages later, God is either everything or he's nothing, right? That's a pretty big leap in six pages. But, uh, you know, the way that what you just said shows up in my life is that when I first got sober, you talk about, people talk about early sobriety, wide road, late sobriety, narrow road. I had this wide road and God was going to keep me sober and I absolutely believed that God was the reason why I didn't want to drink by the time I had gotten to step 10 and those promises started to come true for me. I went to bed one night and I said, thank you for keeping me sober. And I thought, I have not wanted to drink all day long today. That seemed like an impossibility, right? So early sobriety, I could date girls. I could maybe do a little bit of light theft. Uh, <laughs> Recreational. You know, yep. I, I could certainly tell a tale if it suited me well, but I'm not going to drink today, right? And mm-hmm. God has got that. Yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden I'm sitting at a dinner with my dad. This is my first year of sobriety. My dad, one of my buddies in recovery, and my girlfriend. And I just realized that I have no idea how to interact in this conversation with these three people because I'm one person with my dad, I'm one person with my buddy in recovery, and I'm one person with my girlfriend. And so then it's like, oh, maybe God needs to start coming into some of these relationships that I have. And I need to do what my sponsor had originally told me, which was when you get a girlfriend, One hand should be on the girlfriend's hand and one hand should be on God's hand. And that's what you should be doing. And you should be considering what you should be bringing to the relationship instead of taking from the relationship, all those principles of the program, right? So now I'm going to let God enter into my personal life, you know, with with my relationship with my dad or with my friends. I'm at work one day, right? This This is a little embarrassing for me to tell you. It was in 2003, so I was... 
what, um, 13 years sober. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. 13 years sober. And, uh, I was kicking butt at work and I was there for a year or two. I had switched careers and, um, and I thought, man, all these people are getting promoted around me and I'm not getting promoted. And I'm clearly the best at this. Like, look at the numbers, look at what's being, I'm the best at this. And I go into my boss finally, and I kind of had it, this resentment's going around in my head. And I said, I said, you know what? I said, I'm not sure what the deal is, but I'm clearly better than all these people that you're promoting. I'm not sure why you're promoting me. And I'm going to give a toned down version of what he said to me, which was your ego has gotten in the way of your ability to do a good job at work. He was like, you're a good producer. You're going to be a terrible leader. And that was at 13 years of sobriety. My boss, who at the time I thought was kind of a jerk is calling me a jerk, right? Essentially. (laughs) Uh, and, And so then I'm like, oh, maybe God and the principles of the program need to enter into my work life too. And so to me, what, God is everything means is that I don't put God in a box, uh, that I try to allow God to be a part of everything that happens in my life. Um, and I am certain that there are parts of my life right now that I've not allowed God into, right? That I'm going to continue because I'm having this human experience. I'm going to continue to have a human experience. I'm not going to do it right. I'm going to get closer and closer to the line, but I'm never going to touch the line. Let's talk a little bit about the middle part of the steps. Let's talk about four, five, six, and seven. You got anything on that? You know, you've done a good third step when you've immediately started on your fourth step. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that, and I believe that's true. You know, the middle part of the steps, four, five, six, seven, our side of the street is dirty. I know some of my side of the street is dirty, but I don't know all of it. And there are some things I'm going to learn in this inventory process. And then eight and nine, I'm going to start trying to sweep off my side of the street. And so I remember that first four step that I had with my sponsor in Austin. I was probably six months sober. It was hot. It was summertime. We did this four step together. I had one item I did absolutely did not want to tell him on my four step. You know, sometimes we have those, uh, that thing that you don't want to tell him. And he listened to everything. And at the end of that four step, he said, uh, he said, is there anything else? And I remembered that one thing, you know, and I thought, should I tell this guy the one thing? So far, it's gone pretty good, you know, and enough time had gone by that he was like, yeah, there is something else, right? And I was like, yes, <laughs> there is something else. And so I told him that one thing and he asked me to do six and seven. And when you do six and seven, my experience was when I did six and seven, the first time I, I really didn't understand what I was doing, but it's take an hour, right? And there's kind of a step five and a half where you're reviewing the work until then, um, and making sure you've you've done a thorough and honest job. We move straight into six and seven, seven step prayer, right? And so that was a kind of a throwaway to me when I first did it. Man, the fifth step was such a powerful event for me. And I really felt like I had joined Alcoholics Anonymous after I had done that first four through seven. As I've gotten more sober and spent some time in the 12 and 12, you know, five, six, seven in the 12 and 12 is some amazing stuff. Step five in the 12 and 12, it's on page 58. It kind of gives the definition of humility, at least one that I really like. Another great dividend we expect from confiding our defects to another human being is humility, a word often misunderstood. To those who have made progress in AA, it amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. And so that's all stuff that requires outside input. You know, it requires outside input from God. It requires outside input from people in the program, people that I trust. You know, there's a lot of tools that I can use to try to to try to learn that. But this idea that the humility is me continuing to try to come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. I feel like I'm constantly coming back to God. Our friend Krista, who was on this podcast, says something in, in meetings that I just absolutely love. She says, sometimes I 
wake up agnostic. And man, I can really <laughs> relate to that. You know, I, I need to hit my knees in the morning uh, and commit myself to God really because of that idea that I'm going to try to seek out for that humility. The other part in step seven in the 12 and 12 that I really love, it says, indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of AA's 12 steps. Each of AA's 12 steps, that's the principle, right, is humility. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Here's the important part if you've been here for a while. Nearly all AAs have found, too, that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than may be required just for sobriety, they still haven't much of a chance of becoming truly happy, right? And so I came to AA because I had a drinking problem, and I wanted to, get, I wanted to do something about that drinking problem. And then I realized after I got here that what I really had was a selfishness and self-centered problem, that I had a lack of power problem, and that I was ultimately going to forever have a happiness problem if I wasn't able to do something about that selfishness and self-centeredness, about that lack of power, and try to tap into that, that power. Because today... I haven't thought about drinking in a long time. Why am I going to a meeting if I haven't thought about drinking in a, in a long time, right? But the reason why is because I'm trying to continue to learn who I am, continue to become who I'm supposed to be, and because I want to be truly happy, right? Um, and today, uh, I don't have to let humility come and find me. It still does sometimes, right? <laughs> it still does sometimes, but I can actively reach out, right? The book describes that active reaching out for humility. Nice, nice. I appreciate that. So for some of the people that are, aren't super familiar with those steps that we just talked about, I want to read those out yeah. loud. We were yep. just talking about four, five, six, and seven. So here's the middle of the program. So here we go. I'm going to read them to you. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And seven, Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Next, I'd like to read step 11, and then I'm going to ask a question about step mm-hmm. 11. Here we go. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So here comes the step 11 question. What styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you currently using today? Great question. My sponsor reminds me that... The 11th step prayer is not the St. Francis prayer, even though the St. Francis prayer appears in the 11th step. He reminds me that the 11th step prayer is, God, what is your will for me today? And grant me the power to carry that out, right? That's that simple. For me, step 11 has to revolve around that exclusively. I tell God thanks, and I ask him what his will is for me. I know, too, that I'm allowed to ask for things if I think other people will be helped. God, please help me to be a good dad, right? I'm not asking to be a good dad so I can get the Good Dad of the Year award. I'm asking to be a good dad so I can help my kids. So you can be a good dad. Exactly. And so that's really a lot of what my prayer life looks like. I want to comment on a few things, and then I'm going to definitely talk about what I do in the morning. One of the things I think gets a little bit confusing is when you read the big book, you read step 10, and then you move on to step 11, but in step 11, it starts asking you questions that sound like step 10, right? And so it gets a little bit confusing because it says we're going to give you these definite directions on how to meditate. On awakening, do this. Throughout the day, do this. When we retire at night, do this. And those all feel like more along the lines of what the 10th step is, taking this uh, personal inventory uh, uh, and being ready to make amends uh, when we need to, right? And so um, 
So I, in the uh, 12 and 12, again, on page 98, there's a part at the top of the page that says there is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit, but when they are logically related and interwoven, they result in an unshakable foundation for life. So to me, that's what 86, 87, 88 in the big book are. That's my unshakable foundation for life when I'm able to do the prayer, meditation, and self-examination together. So what that looks like for me today is morning meditation is super important to me. I don't believe for me that needs to to be longer than 15 minutes, it can be, but it doesn't need to be. And it can sometimes even be shorter. I do exactly what it says on 86. I ask God to divorce my thoughts from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. I think about what's happening the rest of the day and how that's supposed to work. I've also done something recently as a result of listening to some podcasts okay. that the early Oxford group used to do something called two-way prayer. Everybody's uh, talking about that lately. I, and I think it's become more prevalent, and I don't know <laughs> if it's just become, become more of what's talked about. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, the baseline of what I have to do for step 11 is what is in the big book. I can add on to that if I want to, and so this is me adding on to that. It's also definitely in the spirit of what is in the book. In the right? literature, literature encourages us to do that exactly exactly it says that the world is a treasure trove of information go find it and it absolutely says that if you have some kind of religious or other thing that you want to do you absolutely should do that so let me say that now i'm going to tell you about some of the fun extras that i do Mm -hmm. um not required and haven't done it my entire sobriety this one has been more recent and hopefully a year from now if we did this podcast again Mm -hmm. something to be different because i'm enlarging my spiritual life enlarging means getting bigger changing being different right Mm -hmm. So the two-way prayer thing for me, what that looks like is I take a burning question that I don't know the answer to, and I ask God that question. And then I sit quietly, and whatever random thought comes through my mind while I'm sitting quietly, I write down in a journal. And at the end of a week or two weeks, I'll share that with somebody. I'll review those things and see what comes out of it. So pressing questions for me right now are, what does a good husband do? What does a good son do? What does a good friend do? You know, in, in particular cases that I'm not sure what to do next in that in that particular role that I have, right? So that's the two-way prayer part of it and writing that stuff down and sharing that. So also in step 11 is throughout the day, right? And, and for me, hopefully, I have a bracelet that my oldest son made for me uh, uh, that's a recent thing. He Gave it to me two or three months ago. And I look down at that, and it makes me think about God, right? And so that's a little cue that I have throughout the day to go, Do you have it on? Oh, God, I do. Let me see what it looks like. Oh, wow, that's legit. Yeah, real pretty. That's cool. He loves to make jewelry. And so so that's one thing. I have a Post-it note that sits on my mirror uh, in my bathroom that says pray. I have a Post-it note that sits right next to my desk at home that says pray. And so hopefully throughout the day, I am running across these things and, and praying, there are also times when I can feel the blood start to rush to my face, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel the emotion start to come and my temperature start to rise. Usually for me, that's anger of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when that temperature rises, I hope that I'm also able to pause. You know, we pause when agitated or doubtful mm-hmm. and ask God for the next right thing. Very few times have I paused and thought, thy will not mine be done, and then said or done something incredibly <laughs> disastrous, right? So selfishly, I'm trying to do that. Uh, and then at the end of the night, I answer those of the seven questions that it asks in the book. 
Um, I right now I use a little tool on my phone. I think it costs me 99 cents a month and it automates those questions and I can share them with somebody very easily. So there's a friend of mine who he and I are kind of working steps together right now. Uh, and we share our 10th step with each other every night. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes, sometimes in my sobriety, I've shared that every night. Sometimes I've saved it up and just talked to my sponsor about it, but I do believe in a written 10th step for me at the end of the night. Also step 10 is a walking around step. I don't have to wait until the end of the night to write things down. If something's on my mind in the middle of the day, I can um, make a little note in my phone. I can start my nightly inventory now. Uh, if something's burning, I, I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait to be happy. I don't have to wait to make the phone call. I don't have to wait till the next day to make the amends. I can do all of those things right on the spot. When I was in early sobriety in Oceanside, California, I um, was trying to do all the things that these people at the AA group were trying, trying to tell me to do because I don't want to die. I don't want to mm -hmm. drink again. I don't want to use drugs again. I want to die. So I was like, I'm just gonna. I was in a yes sir mode. Yep. I was in. A, I was highly it's listening. A good place to be, <laughs> I was right? Like, yes sir. I was. Yep. A, they'd be like, do this. I'm like, yes sir, do this. So the reason I'm saying that is I'm trying to paint a picture for what happened next. There was a time when I had two, three, four, five, six months sober. I don't remember, and they were telling me, Mike, you need to pray every morning. You need to pray at night. You know, ask God to keep you sober in the morning and thank him at night and you got to do it on your knees you got to get on your mm -hmm. knees i was like can i do it standing up and they're like oh, we'd rather you get on your knees i was like what about if i'm in the car can i do it while i'm driving they're like yeah you can sure for sure but we'd rather you why don't you roll out of bed and get on your knees and do it right there before you put your shoes on so i was like yes sir so i tried 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 and then some point in that first 90 days of sober uh and it might have happened multiple times to be honest with you i forgot to pray in the morning and it did not occur to me until around 11 a.m yep. and i'm in early sobriety i got like 82 days sober and i'm driving down the road in san diego california with my little 282 days sober under my belt mm -hmm. and it's 11 a.m and i'm like yo dog i don't think you prayed today man i think you forgot because you got out of bed late for work yeah. and you couldn't find your shoes and then you had no gas in your car mm -hmm. and so anyways the reason i'm telling you that is because uh, they told me in that group that I could restart my day anytime Absolutely. I wanted to. And so I remember I was driving to work and I was late and I was not going to make it on time. And I realized I had not prayed. It was 11 a.m. I think I had to be there at 11 a.m. And I was like, well, I'll just pray in the car. And they're like, yeah, they said you could do that. But they said it'd be better if you get on your knees. And I was mm -hmm. like, yo, I'll just pull over at this next exit and try to find a place to do it. So I just pulled over at the exit. I didn't have time to be doing that, but I pulled over yeah. anyway. And there was this gas station. I was like, yo, I don't want to do it. Like, I don't want everybody to see me. Yeah. I was like, I'll just run in the bathroom over here and do it. Yes. And I tried the door and it was locked. So I ran over to the cashier and I was like, yo, give me the key. And they're like, we need your driver's license. I was like, fine. So I yes. gave my driver's license yes. and I ran back to the bathroom and I opened the bathroom door and I went in there and I looked. And it was not super clean, yeah. but it was not super disgusting, yep. but it was definitely a gas station bathroom yep. off of the highway in California. Yeah. And I was like, are you going to do this or not? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And so I got down on my knees and I just said, God, please keep me sober today. I'm sorry. I forgot to talk to you this morning and ask you. I obviously am trying to really be sober and I'm obviously really trying to be in AA or else there's no reason that I would be <laughs> pulling over on the highway when I have no time and to be on the floor in this bathroom doing this yes. and so uh, i'm gonna so do what much. they told me and restart my day yeah. and i don't think i've ever told anybody that story how many times have you been you don't have to tell me the number how yeah. many times have you been in an eight o'clock meeting and you say the serenity prayer and you're like 
man, this is the first time I prayed today. I've definitely had that happen to me. And I'm yeah. like, wow, I thank God I got to this meeting today, <laughs> yeah. or it might have been a total wash. You might have missed you know, it. My, my first sponsor said the same thing. I said, you know, yes, your first sponsor, silly questions. And one silly question I asked him was how often I should pray. And he said, only three times. He said, you need to pray in the morning, you need to pray at night, and you need to pray at the time in between. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and that's just as true for me today as it was then. There's anecdotal things that your sponsor helps you with, right? And so there's no step in the big book that says pray in the morning, pray at night, do it on your knees. But he said he did exactly what you talked about. I'm sure someone gave you this advice too, which is put your shoes under the bed, right? And, and that's, I, I started doing, that was like the, like <laughs> read step one, you know, read the doctor's opinion and read Bill's story and read more about alcoholism. There's, and Get on your knees and ask God to help keep you sober. And if you stayed sober, tell him thanks. Mm -hmm. Just do that. Do it at morning and night. We're going to get in that habit because as you get more sober, that morning and night routine, you need to start getting a groove. Mm -hmm. You start wearing a groove in your morning and wearing a groove in your night that you're going to be doing that. And and, uh, that, that is just as true today for me as it was then. It's fun to um, be told that by your sponsor. Yep. It's also fun to be a sponsor and tell that to yeah. people. And then there's the real life part of it where, yeah. you know, the, all those are just words. But then if you're actually going to do it, then it's going to actually be, become yeah. part of your life. And so for me, what has happened when I got sober, I had no wife. I had yeah. no kid. I had no real good job. I didn't yeah. have a dog. I didn't have a house. I was all in an the apartment. In the world. Yeah, I didn't have very much going on. So I had get all those things going and do what they told me to do. Like I said, yes, sir, mode. I was doing what they told me to do. But then as the years and the decades start to roll by, my life starts to look different, feel different. And now I'm incorporating a wife in my morning prayer. And now I'm incorporating a child into my morning meditation. And now I'm bringing the golden retrievers into the prayer circle. I love it. So it's like things are maturing and changing, but it's all based off of the foundation of doing what they told me to do. That's exactly right. In the early days, which I didn't think was probably going to work. And it probably wasn't a good idea. And it was probably a waste of time. But they're like, just do it anyway. And like you already mentioned, like an hour ago, it's so true. Uh, My sponsor told me, he's like, well, do you believe that I believe? And I was like, dude, I have to believe that you believe because all the stories that you've told me about yourself, and then I see you now, you're not the dude that you told me you were five years ago. My sponsor, his name was the Bushman of Oceanside. Mm -hmm. And the reason they called him the Bushman of Oceanside is because he used to be living in the bushes Mm -hmm. and was homeless and lived under the five. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the highway. Long story short, five years later when I met him, he had five years sober and he had an apartment. He had like 10 surfboards. He had a girlfriend. He was going to Hawaii all the time to surf. He was not homeless anymore and they did not call him the Bushman of Oceanside. So when he told me that he believed and God, I was like, yo, I'm just going to borrow that dude's God. Yeah, man. I'm going to borrow that dude's God for a little while because that dude's God seems pretty productive. And uh, he has a lot of things I want, like a bunch of surfboards, a girlfriend, five years sobriety, and goes to Hawaii twice a year to surf, and he's got a job. And I don't have a lot of yeah. those things. One of my friend, uh, friends at my Frisco group, and I'm sure it's been said plenty of times, David, he, he says in the meeting when we talk about step 11, you know, he talks about meditation. And he says, hey, if you're not participating in meditation – you're not participating in the 12 steps. It's not 11 and a half steps, it's 12 <laughs> steps, right? And I, I'm a firm believer in that. And one of the things you hear is, you know, I'm just not good at meditation. And it's like, well, it doesn't say, you know, if we were good at it, made an inventory, right? Mm-hmm. It just says make an inventory. It doesn't say if you're good at it, we meditate, right? And so uh, I would tell you that some days I feel really good at it. Yeah. Like I have a very powerful almost ethereal experience 
And 95% of the time, I'm thinking about my first meeting. I'm thinking about what I need to do with the kids later. I'm thinking, so I'm not good at it either, dude. And I've been doing it for a long time. Do it. Just do what it says out of the book. You know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's literally a five-minute task in the morning and a five-minute task in the evening if, if you do what it says in the book. I want to share one other thing with you on this topic, and then we'll move on. I love AA history. Uh, I love some unauthorized history, but the real history is the forward to the second edition is a great place to start. AA Comes of Age is also a great place to go. And Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers is another one of my favorite ones. You hear in meetings a lot these days when you hear about people who have relapsed, right? And, and part of that relapse story is like, oh, they stopped going to meetings. And I believe that that's true. That's one of the first things that, that you see people, they stop going to meetings. It's interesting in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. I don't know the page numbers. I'm looking at it on my phone. I highlighted a couple things this morning that I wanted to mention. And Bill is talking about people getting sober at Wally and Annabelle G's house, which are early people in recovery. And one of the things he says is, I think there may have been times when we attributed it to their morning hour of meditation, Bill said. I sort of always felt that something was lost from AA when we stopped emphasizing the morning meditation something that Bill said. And then later, another early member, Duke, is talking. He said, Duke remembered taking a pole of slippers in the early 1940s and finding that they had all stopped having their morning quiet time. Wow. You know, those early AAs, especially in Cleveland and Akron, were really big on morning quiet time. I will be honest with you, that may be the last of the 12 steps that I really tried to get good at. You know, and, and I have put a very concerted effort, especially over the last 10 years, to get really good at definitely setting aside that morning quiet time. And to your point, when you started up that list of things that you do today, I think about how many distractions I have. You know, when the kids were little, they would wake me up throwing up at six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right? And I didn't say, hey, hold on, before you throw up, let me hit my knees, oh right? My and God. so I had to figure out at some point, oh, I got to adjust myself. And so um, it, it requires a concerted effort. But I also will tell you that if I've gone by like eight o'clock that day and I'm like, hmm, something's not right. Oh, I haven't gotten quiet yet this morning. That's what's not right. And so if something distracts me, I, there's something in my mind that tells me it most of the time recenters me back to, oh, I need to have that morning quiet time. Yeah, there's a part in literature that talks about that we would once we get deep into prayer and meditation, we would no longer refuse it as we need oxygen and food and water. That's exactly right. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's good. Exactly right. Do you have any A heroes or mentors? Oh. Or why are they important to you? Well, I mean, Michael would be one of those. Mm -hmm. As we sit across from the podcast to each other, the work that you're putting into this, you mm -hmm. know, I have so many heroes and mentors. I could give you a list and I would I would short myself. Yeah. It's funny, in looking at this, I just started writing down names, right? Mm -hmm. Just of what came to my mind at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and like, I'm going to let the day get away from me here if I keep writing these names down. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so many because there's so many people that have done so much for me thousands of people, whether it's something they shared in a meeting, whether it's making the pot of coffee, uh, whether it's walking through something incredibly difficult in sobriety and sharing that, whether it's being transparent about the story about their sister on the plane in a meeting, you know, that I'm hearing for the first time, um, whether, whether it's uh, 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 coming and cleaning up, whether it's being the chairperson of the meeting when it's your first meeting and you say, I've never chaired a meeting before. I'm chairing my first meeting today. 
There are so many powerful things, little and big things that happen in our program, right? You said at the beginning, how can you describe, you know, if people listen to this, they're going to feel like it sounds like a terrible thing, right? The, what, what you're prescribing. If you've, <laughs> terrible antidote. <laughs> God, but man, once you get on the inside of this deal, it is, it is like more addictive than any drug you've ever done before. You know, you just want more of it. When you hear that guy just like pouring out his heart in a meeting, it really speaks to you and you really start to, <clears throat> excuse me, feel the near, nearness of your creator when something like that happens. It's something you really want to experience over and over again. My mentors, my heroes are the ones that do that. You know, they're the ones that can be transparent, tell me about the human experience they're having and continue to, to kind of move on through the process. Um, and uh, AA is chock full of people like that. Yeah, I agree. There's plenty of times I hear people sharing in meetings and they're, they're, they're in my, I'll use the term going off. I mean, they're blowing up. Get on this share. I'm like, yes, sir. Come on now. Mm-hmm. Preach. Bring it. You know, they're Bring just, it. They're just, Let's close after yeah. this guy shares because exactly. we done. Yeah. I'm like, we're 12 <laughs> minutes in. I'm like, yo, we could just all go to lunch now because he just blew it out. Dude, exactly. the guy's got 96 days and he just laid it down. I know. I know there's a guy who goes to my home group now. His name is Ricky. Yeah. And I saw Ricky at McKinney Miracle. I was speaking over there and he wanted to come over to Frisco group and he kind of caught me in the parking lot and he seemed, I, I, I don't, he wasn't drunk or anything. He just, he seemed like he was real frazzled and frantic and I could tell he was really struggling mm-hmm. and it was a hard conversation to have with him. Mm-hmm. And he comes to our, our group now, Frisco group. And man, every time he speaks in the meeting, it just like, he's only a couple of years sober, yeah. but every time he speaks in the meeting, dude, it just hits me right between the eyes yeah. because I've just watched him grow. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, you've seen stories like that over and over and over again, man, we'd be missing that if we weren't, if we weren't coming to meetings like we are and, and participating like we are and involved like we it's so fun to latch on to get to a particular person and just kind of like really get invested with mm-hmm. them and their story. And it's so crazy because there's this girl and I won't mention her name because I don't know her name. Yep. And uh, she's got less than a year. And um, when she speaks, I'm like, all right. Mm-hmm. Even before she talks, yeah. I know it's going to be good because yeah. she just speaks such truth. And I'm like, yeah. every time they call her, I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. You, know, you don't have to be the most eloquent speaker to be a hero. There's so many things that you can do. I, I do get excited when I hear somebody share, but I, you know, there's the guy who's brand spanking new that's excited about making the coffee and cleaning up the coffee afterwards. That jazzes me up just as much as anything else does. Because I remember when they said, you know what you get to do? You get to have your first service commitment today. You get to make coffee. You know, you need to show up yeah. to the Tuesday Clean meeting. Clean up the ashtrays. You show up to the Tuesday meeting 30 minutes early. And you need to make the coffee and make sure that whole thing's set up and the chairs are set up. And that's going to be your job for the month of August, you know. I just had a funny thought. I think all the girls at my home group that have less than a year are going to be thinking I'm talking about them. <laughs> well, let's hope they are. They're, gonna they're all, all excited. <laughs> they're like, man, I am killing it. Yeah, they're going to think he's talking about me, dude. <laughs> I'm killing it over here. Least, I'm doing so good. He's talking about me on that podcast. Dude. I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the promises? There's a big list of them right yep. there in front of you. Can you give me an example of when the promises coming true in your life? Well, I mean, let's. I know they all have, though. But Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, and, and let's say that, that we put, you know, the ninth step promises we put on the wall. And yeah. I think the reason why we put those things on the wall is because that's such a powerful part of our recovery is understanding how we had harmed people and then genuinely going out to try to repair that damage. Um, 
because there's nothing more important in life than our human relations, right? Our relations with each other, uh, uh, treating each other with patience, kindness, tolerance, and love, you know? And so when we start to do that genuinely for the first time in making these amends, that's when some of the biggest promises start to come true. I think about something like a new freedom and a new happiness, you know? It's like we've redefined what freedom is. We've redefined what happiness is as a result of tapping into this power greater than ourselves, you know? I will tell you, for me, the most important promise, my sponsor pointed it out to me early on, was the, were the 10 step promises, you know, and this idea that we'll be placed in a position of neutrality and the drink problem uh, is removed, right? Because I thought that was an impossibility when I first got here. I just thought AA was going to be a bunch of us hanging onto our chairs, uh, you know, self helping each other and, and <laughs> you know, group therapying each other to not drinking just another day, you know. Yeah. And, and what, I, what I didn't realize was that that Alcoholics Anonymous and our spirituality was going to be so much more. But man, the first day that I didn't want to drink the entire day, that was maybe since the greatest miracle that's ever happened in my life because it just didn't seem possible. At what, at what point in the day did you realize that? It was at night. What time, about 9 or 10? Yeah, it was it, it, literally right before I went to bed. And at that time, I was probably going to bed pretty late. So it might have been 11 or 12 at night. And I mm. just thought, thanks for keeping me sober. And I thought... Holy smokes. I went the entire day, mm -hmm. the entire day without thinking about drinking. I think I had about 82 days sober when that happened to me. I had about 82 days sober and I was at night time was around nine or 10 mm -hmm. o'clock at night. And I was in Carlsbad, California and I was going to sleep and I was like, yo, thanks for keeping me sober. I was like, what? I was like, yo dog, you did not want to drink today. Yeah. You didn't think about it. And you also didn't think about smoking weed today. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I was like, I started thinking about, it. I was like, yeah, well you also went to three meetings today. Yeah. You know, I think I did a noon yeah. or a six and an eight. Yeah. So I was kind of in the rooms all day. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the night, I was like, I cannot. Because for years and years and years and years and years before that, I wanted to drink or drug every four hours. Yeah. It's about every four hours. My well, body, my body know, be like, come on now. It talks about in our literature, you know, it talks about the obsession and the allergy, right? And and so for me, the times when I, the brief times when I stayed sober before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I say brief times, I mean a few hours during the day, right? Mm -hmm. It was because that 12 pack of beer was in my future or that bag of weed was in my future. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's in so, your glove box waiting yes. for you. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, yeah, I can sit through the next two Ugh. hours of whatever I'm doing Class because I know I'm going to be work. able to... Yes. Dude. Oh, the worst. No, man. The worst. Okay. This next question was added by my wife. Ooh, so nice. special, special shout out to Kristen. What has been your most profound experience working the 12 steps? Now that is a monster question and you might not have an answer to it and that would be fine. But what has been your most profound experience working the 12 steps? If you ask me that question tomorrow, it'll be a different answer. So okay. you know, know that, right? Because <laughs> I feel like I've personally had a lot of profound experiences yeah. in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I described one of them to you, which was that first four, five, six, and seven with my sponsor. Mm -hmm. That was, I, I, I thought after doing that, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. You know, that was the first time I thought this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, I don't know, dude. Uh, uh, all the unthinkable things that have happened to me, career, wife, kids, house. You know, I didn't think I was going to live to 
you know, past my 20s, you know, for a, a good stretch of my life. So the idea that I'm like happy, joyous and free with all these things that I didn't think were important, didn't know that I wanted, uh, didn't know that would make me feel fulfilled. Um, uh, it, it, it's over and over and over because when your eyes are open and I'm trying to be honest, open-minded and willing, you realize how much profound stuff is going around you all the time. Right. I mean, if I'm open to it, I can see the profundity of a lot of things. You know, it doesn't take much for me to feel profound things are happening around us all the time. But it's certainly some of those milestones, some of those amends, uh, uh, sponsoring somebody to a year for the first time, you know, being the GSR of my group and like going to my first like general service thing that I had ever done before. That was a I was like, oh, my gosh. There's a lot of people that are really invested in making sure Alcoholics Anonymous is awesome and lasts for a long time. I didn't know that was happening. I was just going to my group over and over again. And so to go to like an area or district thing for the first time and be like, there's a lot of people that care about this program. Yeah. That's kind of what's going on at one of my uh, groups around Dallas right now. I won't name it, but there's a guy stepping up in a leadership role fighting for the survival of the group. Yeah, and, man. And if you would have asked me, do you think that that guy's going to be capable of doing all that? I'd be like, I don't know, probably not. But then all of a sudden now, in 2000, the end of 2021, he's stepping up and going into, you know, daddy mode almost yeah. like daddy mode for the yeah. group he's leading you know it's hard to it's from what i see it's hard to uh lead a group of alcoholics because you got 25 people with 25 different opinions and right. some of them are aggressive and some of them are not aggressive yep. and some people want to get legal want to sue and some people don't want to <laughs> sue it's like it's a trip um so let's go back to the aa conference deals yeah. for a while it sounds like you like the aa conferences oh my god have you ever been to any internationals yet i have you do yeah, yeah good. are you going to try to go to the one in vancouver coming up i'm probably not going to go to that one so the i went to atlanta which was was super cool yeah um i'll tell you a quick conference story and that is there i I think this is true someone can correct me the second oldest conference in the state of texas besides the state conference is the coastal bend jamboree that happens usually in corpus i think it still happens in corpus but there was a group of guys when I first got sober that would go to this conference. Mm-hmm. And it was like this crappy holiday in in, Gal- in Corpus Christi. And it was in February. So it's not the best time to go to the coast. You right. know? But I remember going to that conference and just like the energy and excitement and like the sobriety countdown and people who were new and this amazing speaker who gave this very passionate talk about the program and just like a a room full of hundreds of people saying the prayer together and then you know like international young people's conferences ikipa which i've gone to quite a few of those um just the the energy and excitement to me a conference is something that really recharges my battery. I almost always come back from a conference like, I'm going to do something different in my recovery, and it's this, you mm-hmm. know? And so, like, the most recent one that I went to was a Texipaw conference. It just happened here in October. Uh, great conference, and it was hosted in Dallas this year. And I went to that conference, and I saw a couple people that I hadn't seen before, and I said, you know, one of the things I need to do is... There's a lot of conference people that I see often and had been reaching out to a lot. I just hadn't done that because I hadn't been to a conference in two years. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm really going to make a concerted effort 
to these five people that I reconnected with, you know, I'm going to try to make sure that I, I reach out to them at least once a month between now and the next time I see them at a conference, you know, or I'm going to do more with my meditation. I'm going to try this new app that somebody shared with me about meditation. I'm going to go back into my group and I'm going to get more involved in general service. I'm going to get more involved in my home group. I'm going to get more involved in a treatment center. I almost always come back from that feeling charged up to do something new or different or try try something again uh, in the program that I hadn't done. So I think it's a great way to charge your batteries. It, 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 it may not be for everybody. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I know there's some people that maybe are overwhelmed by the number of people there or, yeah. you know, it's not their thing. But, man, for me, that has been my thing from the very beginning. I'll go to any conference you want to, Michael. I, yeah. To me, it's always a good time. I'm into them too, big time. And our last guest, Jennifer HK, talked about uh, something, and she made a point I had never really thought about. She says that we go to these conferences ready to receive the message. Yeah. We're there. We're expecting good speakers. Yes. We're expecting fellowship. We're expecting a good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then drive home. So You know, the other cool thing about that, too, is we have little mini things that go on around Dallas, uh, you know, citywide is yeah. a great way to get just a little bit of a taste of that and being involved in that is fun. Uh, in in, um, in Frisco, there's Tri-City. You know, there's Tri-City. It's a bigger speaker meeting. Mm-hmm. And even if you can't go to a conference, man, try to go to one of those bigger speaker meetings. When I when I lived in, in Tampa that time, there was a place, it was in St. Pete. I don't know if it's still there or not. I haven't been able to find it. But it was called the World Famous Speaker Meeting. And it was a lot like, <laughs> it was the first one of those that I had gone to that was like this conference atmosphere. Yeah. But it was a, a just a one-night meeting. But I would drive to the halfway house where one of my sponsees was, and I would load up my SUV and we would drive from Tampa to St. Pete and have the meeting before the meeting Mm -hmm. and then do the potluck and do the world-famous speaker meeting, which is always an amazing speaker, and then drive back. And it was just like this little mini thing every week that recharged my batteries, you know, getting to spend time with those guys and, and getting jazzed about the program all over again. Yeah, when I got sober in Southern California, there was a meeting I went to every, I don't know if it was Wednesday night or Thursday night, but it was a weekly big meeting at the Carlsbad Convention Center. And there was 100, 200 people there, which was a big meeting for that town. And I would set my clock by, and yes, I had less than a year. And yes, I had kind of like a little bit of social anxiety because my drinking and drug use uh, isolated me. And I was used to being by myself, so I wouldn't have to share my drugs with you. And I wouldn't have to share my alcohol with you. So I was not really socialized that much. I was almost like a shelter pet, you know, of my own own making and my own little apartment. And uh, I liked that meeting, even though I didn't know everybody there or hardly anybody, and I was scared. I still went, and there was the format was there was a fifteen minute speaker, and then we would break for coffee and cookie and cake, and then we would reconvene, and then there would be a speaker for an hour, hour and a half. Oh, so good. So that you know, and that, good. I feel like that part of the uh, the country too is um, California. Man, is big on stuff like that. They have a great YPAW. They have great conferences out there. They have those some of those big speaker meetings. You probably got exposed to a lot of that stuff when you were out in California. It's beautiful. Yeah, there's so many meetings out there, and it's so cool with the internet and the iPhone and the you know the Google phones yep. and all. It's so crazy that you can now. I mean, central offices are still necessary and cool and all that, but you can seriously find a lot of that now on these apps. Um, and you can find meetings close to you, and you can narrow the search results. There's this new app I have, and I don't think it is anything to do. I don't know who sponsors this app, but I'm sure you guys have mostly seen it. But it's an app, and it's got um, it says Meeting Guide. So if you go to the App Store or the Google Play mm-hmm. Store, and you type in Meeting Guide, you'll see a blue square with a white circle and a white metal folding chair in the middle of it. And so when you click on that, 
the location services uh, are, are turned on and it says all meetings near current location. So I just turned mine on and there's a two o'clock meeting near me. There's a three o'clock oh, meeting. There's a 3 p.m. And it just knows. It tells me how many miles away it is from me. It tells me the address. It tells me their phone number. And then I can click on directions. I can call them. I can add it to my favorites. And then there's a Dallas intergroup phone number connection on here. So there, that app, I highly recommend God, that app. I love that. Yeah, it's well, called Meeting Guide. You know, I, you mentioned your, I don't know if it was today or you're going to mention it or what, but I know you have a Sober Shares secret Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell you what, when I started going to conferences again in my later sobriety, there's so many little secret Facebook groups that you can get involved in by going to those conferences (laughs) and being, that is so much fun just being so connected like that. And, and, you know, there's one for the international conference. And and, and so I'm, I'm in that Facebook group and it's like, oh, I'm going to DC for work and I'm going to be there for the weekend and I'm going to have a Friday night available and here's where I'm staying. I'm going to be in McLean. Mm-hmm. What's a good meeting I can go to on Friday night? And then there'll be people that are in this yeah. Facebook group like, oh, I live here. This is my home group. Come on that yeah. night. I'll meet you out there, you know? And, yeah. and so to be connected in that way, I yeah. mean, so much different than when you and I first got sober. I mean, there really wasn't an internet when I first got sober. I did not have a cell phone. Uh, you, you know, you called your sponsor from a pay phone <laughs> or he called you at home. Um, and, and it was a uh, it was a different deal than it is now. And, and man, there are so many tools and available resources. It's really cool. Yeah, it's totally amazing. Really cool. We're getting towards the end. I want to yeah. ask you the big question: um, uh, Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? So I want to give you a couple seconds to get your thoughts mm-hmm. together on that. On any parting thoughts you have for the audience, I want to read something. I don't think I've read this on the podcast okay, yet. Cool. These are the twelve traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. We were talking about. The 12 traditions. I just want to let you guys hear this in case you haven't heard it or it's been a while. One, 12 traditions. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facilities outside enterprises, less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Alcoholics Anonymous, this is number eight. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. So what are you thinking? You want to try to take a shot at that parting thoughts question? Yeah, I I do. The thing that came to mind, you know, we talked about, at the big, you and I talked about at the beginning of the podcast being a channel, right? And the thing that came to my mind when um, 
when you were talking just now was thinking about somebody who's brand new at their first conference, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they'll get a badge that says first conference or first time attending a conference. And I think as I've been here, just like everybody did with me, one of my challenges when I go to that conference is to find somebody who's new in recovery, find somebody who's new to the conference. Like, Hey, we're all going out to lunch tomorrow. You know, come out to lunch with us. Hey, I'm going to this panel. Come sit in this panel with me. Uh, you know, we're going to do this little event, come to the event with me and getting people involved in that way. If you read, if you go to a meeting, uh, an AA meeting, you will understand the importance of meetings, right? Uh, you'll understand it because of being in the meeting. You'll also understand it because people will tell you 90 meetings in 90 days. You should come <laughs> to meetings. Everyone should have a meeting schedule. If you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially the first 164 pages, you would not understand the importance of meetings because when that book was written, uh, meetings did not exist as they do now. I think meetings are actually mentioned only two or three times. I think it's twice in A Vision for You and once in um, Bill's story, but I'm going to read you the one that is in Bill's story. It's just one sentence. Uh, it's at the bottom of page 15 and goes into 16. It says, we meet frequently so the newcomer can find the fellowship they seek. And I think the longer I've come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I've thought really my job exclusively Uh, when I go to a meeting is to be there for the newcomer to help them find the fellowship that they seek. Those guys certainly at the Unity Group in January of 1990 were there not for themselves, not because they needed to tell some story or feel good about themselves or whatever. They were there because I was there. They thought I was the most important person there because I was new uh, and they wanted to um, do their best to help to introduce me to the program of action that saved their life. And so today, when I think I need a meeting, I hope what I need a meeting means is I'm going to show up there early. I'm going to look around to see if I see somebody that I don't know and go introduce myself to them. I'm going to listen intently with both ears in a meeting to what people have to say and not think about what I'm going to say when I get called on. And believe me, (laughs) I do it all the time, Michael, but I I challenge myself to try to just listen to what people have to say. Mm Somebody gets a desire chip. Somebody says they're hurting. Somebody says they're new. I can go to that person afterwards. Glad you're here. Is there anything I can do for you? You know, I think that, um, and I see, man, you see that at the Preston group. You see that at Frisco group. You know, the places that I've called home since I've been in Dallas and the places that I've called in home and recovery in general have been those kind of places that really are intent on making sure that they're available to the um, alcoholic who's still suffering a lot of times that's new people. Uh, a lot of times that's people that have been here for a while. But um, uh, I, I love the idea that uh, my job today is to be there to welcome people in the same way that I got welcomed. That's beautiful. Amen. That's beautiful. I feel the same way. Uh, one, the, one of the ways that uh, in early sobriety that I attempted to be of service uh, within the first year, just trying to figure it out and try, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? The first thing I challenged myself to do was to attempt to remember people's names. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great one. Yeah. Because nothing makes you feel better than when you show up yeah. and like, oh my God, that guy knew my name. Yeah. Because I remember in the yeah. beginning, uh, everybody would introduce themselves. I was like, dude, you've been coming here three months. So you don't know nobody's name. And then I was like, why do you not know anybody's name? And I'd be like, there's one of two reasons. Either one, I don't care. <laughs> Or, or two, my brain is damaged from all that alcohol. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit of both. All that smoke and drink, man, damaged up my brain. And so I was like, yo, I'm going to try to remember. And so I started off trying to remember the names of the people that picked up desire chips. So I could go to them afterwards and be like, 
hey, Mark, I'm glad you're here. I got six months. You know, I'm just a little bit in front of you. Stoked you're here because I'm not the youngest person in this group yeah, anymore. Yeah. So I'm stoked you're here. And then as I was trying to remember their names, I'd be like, yo, I don't know if I can remember. It's an hour. I don't know if nice. I can remember that dude's name's Mark. I don't know if I can remember that nice. for an hour. But I started to try to get the wheels turning there. Do you have um, any contact information that you'd like to share with our listeners that would like to get in touch with you in any way? Sure. I have an email address that I don't monitor as much as I should, but it's bleedingdeacon62 at gmail.com for my favorite rule 62. Uh, and I, w- I also will say, too, that I know you have contact info. If anybody wants my phone number, they can reach out to you. You're welcome to give my phone number to anybody. I'd love to talk to people, text with people. Uh, happy to chat with anybody who would like to talk. Okay. My, my email, if you want to reach out to me, is mike at com. So that is my email. I want to thank you for joining us on Sober Shares today. It's been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thanks, man. I appreciate you doing this. I've mentioned it before, and I'll say it again. Super grateful for what you're doing. I I look forward to not necessarily listening to my episode, but I look forward (laughs) to listening to everybody else's. It's been really cool. I've power listened since the last time we were here, and I'll be eating it up when new ones come out for sure. Do you think you'll let your wife listen to it? It's funny. My my wife, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but my wife... um, She's only come to a handful of meetings with me, and she's like, I don't get it, you know, pretty yeah. much every time, which is totally fine. She's incredibly supportive. Uh, she lets me bring my goofy friends over to the house, and we all hang out. And mm-hmm. guys, you know, my sponsorship circle, my family knows, my kids know, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I could offer it to her, but the problem is when I offer it to her, she'll think what I'm saying is, please listen to it. And so I don't want her to feel the pressure of please listen to it. She gets enough of my nonsense, Michael. I mean, it's, <laughs> She's got a snoot fully. <laughs> especially in COVID, but I'm working from home. It's like I don't even go anywhere yeah. anymore. So, yeah. she, you know, she, I think she feels like she has learned about yeah. it as much of me as she needs yeah. to. I feel like my wife might be traveling in the same boat. Uh-oh. Yeah, I've done. You're number 20. I think she's listened to two or three of these. She's like, I got to listen to more, but I'm busy. I, I know my wife, when we first got together, she, I was like, I was like, oh, I want to go to a meeting today. It's my sober birthday. I'm going to get a chip. And she's like, am I supposed to celebrate your sobriety birthday? And I was like, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you pick? Uh-huh. We can either celebrate my naval birthday or we can celebrate my sobriety birthday. But I don't want to do both. Uh-huh. I don't get to have an extra one just because I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> um, and she said, well, let's just stick with naval. And I was like, that sounds good. Dear. Okay. That sounds good. That's beautiful. It sounds like you got a cool family. Oh, awesome. Okay, I want to read something from A Vision for You. This is page 164 of the big book about Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we'll get out of here and see you all in the next episode. A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you, countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you. And keep you until then. We'll see you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening to Sober Shares.